call them younger Sahaba or junior Sahaba or Sahaba from more remote far away areas, they themselves recognize the Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Umar were senior Sahaba, erudite Sahaba, wise Sahaba and many times they would consult them as well. And so a discussion was taking place as to who to appoint as the leader. This doesn't mean when voices became loud, it doesn't mean there was a heated discussion or an argumentative discussion, but one, two, three, four, five, several people are talking together, then obviously, uh, you know, voices become loud. So this is one incident when uh, this may have happened. Similarly, in the second incident, Sayyidina Qatada Rimullah says that the verse was revealed in response to the words that some people they expressed that they wanted a particular law to be revealed in on a particular matter, which doesn't mean that Allah Subhanahu had not yet sent revelation about a particular matter and some were expressing their voice to the Prophet. So let me do one at a time. So the first incident would mean that uh, the meaning of this, and let me uh, translate the rest of it. Second ayah, ayyuhaladinamnullah, you believe you should not raise your voices above the voice of the Prophet and you should not speak to him loudly that the way that some of you speak loudly to one another this is a very strong thing that lest all of your deeds come to nothing means Allah Ta'ala will wipe away all of your deeds and acts and a'mal if you engage in this bi'adbi, this lack of adab bantum la tash'urun and you will not even realize it the Arabic here in these two verses lends itself to many possible ways to translate this it also depends where you pause and where you link certain words with other words so the first thing then is lower your voices then meant literally that when you are talking with one another right near the Prophet's room or with an earshot of him and there are many of you so your voices may be raised so there you could say وَأَنْتَمْ لَا تَشْعُرُونَ you could do atif of that you could join, conjoin that to an earlier part that don't speak loudly even if you don't realize it so the point is that start realizing it be more watchful of your other be more watchful of your behavior be more careful around the Prophet but that's not the written, but yeah, that's one possible meaning, right? Second meaning is that raise your voices means figuratively, like we said to you, that don't ask for a particular law to be revealed or Allah Ta'ala to send revelation according to one way or the other and get excited about that or worked up about that. That would be more in line with the first verse that don't la tukaddimu, don't proceed ahead, don't put yourselves before Allah Ta'ala and the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, don't jump the gun, don't try to overtake, wait for Allah Ta'ala and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to decree the law. Then you can go back to another literal reading that don't proceed ahead of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet Now you cannot walk ahead of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? That is obviously impossible. There's no question. Allah ta'ala is beyond space and time. But it also meant that one way it was understood is that you should not walk in front of Sayyidina Rasulullah. That was against Adab. That don't walk in front of him. And certainly uh, there are a few cases in which the Prophet told someone to walk in front of him. This has been sometimes on a journey. So he asked somebody to one of the Sahaba to walk in front of him as a guide or on jihad because one Sahaba was appointed as the front scout that was his job to be the scout so he would be walking in front of the Prophet or sometimes when visitation of a home you ask Sahib al-Bayt or the person of the home that he should go first to make sure that there's proper parda to announce your arrival and also because he knows when you go in or you're supposed to go left or right or go upstairs or go downstairs Similarly, you find incidents of this in the books mentioned 
and in the hadith about the Sahaba, what does that mean? That even it's not just for this another question, is this khas for the Prophet? Or should this be applied to religious elders also? So there's one hadith in which Sayyidina Rasulullah saw two of his Sahaba, Sayyidina Abu Darda radiallahu ta'ala and Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala. And Sayyidina Abu Darda was walking in front of Sayyidina Abu Bakr. Nabi Akhidim Sassam stopped them and he told Sayyidina Abu Darda that you are walking in front of a person who is better than you in this world and in the Akhirah. And know that the sun has never risen or set on any man better than Abu Bakr after the Prophets. Meaning that he's the greatest non-prophetic human being. So for Ghair Anbiya, we have another hadith of the Prophet that is similar in nature, that even within Ghair Anbiya, those who are viewed to be superior or inferior in terms of deen, right? So what was happening, it doesn't mean Sayyidina Abu Darda didn't realize the greatness of Sayyidina Bakr, but there was also a casual relationship between Sahaba, right? So here Nabi Ghazan was instructing them that notwithstanding your mutual love and informality and casual relationship between one another, Abu Darda, maybe you could, maybe you could be walking together, but Abu Darda, you shouldn't be walking in front because the rutbah of Abu Bakr is greater than yours. So when you look at that hadith, and that suggests that whether this ayah is to be taken as an, ex- whether you want to take that as the extension of this ayah or just a separate aspect of teaching of deen, but this can also be taken literally as to who to walk in front of uh, and who not to walk in front of. All of this Allah sponsor says, that all of this is going to be about taqwa, about fearing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it means all of this is done for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not for the sake of worshipping someone or for any human being, but this is part of Allah Ta'ala's wish on us. In Allah Samiyun Alim, indeed Allah Ta'ala's all hearing, all knowing means He hears everything you say outwardly. Alimun, He knows all the intentions that you have for what you say inwardly. He knows all of your inward thoughts and feelings and feelings and reasons for saying what it is that you say. Then the second part of not raising your voices above the voice of Sayyidina Rasulullah So this has been understood first, number one, the Sahaba Ikram should not raise their voices in front of him. And it's been mentioned that once this verse was revealed, then after that Sayyidina Umar, do not speak loudly to him as you speak with one another informally. So after that Sayyidina Umar used to speak so softly to the Prophet that even Sayyidina had sometimes difficulty being able to hear and listen to what he was saying and sometimes he would ask him to repeat or he would ask him to speak louder. And then there was another Sahaba, Sahabi, Sayyidina Thabit ibn Kaiswadan, who had a naturally, some people have very tab'an, loud or booming voices. So when this verse was revealed, he started crying. Because Allah says, and I have to do that for you, that uh, uh, all of his deeds had gone to waste. But again, Sayyidina Rasulullah consoled him and said, no, it wasn't about you in that sense. So first is for the Sahaba. Second, what it also means is figuratively that don't raise your voice above the voice of the Prophet means that when he has told you to do something and that's his voice is not Quran. So this is an ashar to hadith because you know there's this other crazy sect out there that denies all hadith. Ghulam uh, Pervez was the founder and he was in Lahore. So then it our duty of the ulama of Lahore to speak out about the fitness that have been raised in Lahore. So some have taken this as well, that the voice of the Prophet so Quran is Kalamullah, it's not Kalam Rasul, it's not the speech of the Prophet, it's the speech of Allah. So here is Allah being mentioned to the speech of the Prophet So some have taken this verse to mean that when he decrees something, teaches something, and his hadith, his sunnah, then you should not raise your voice against that, literally maybe verbally arguing against it, critiquing it, analyzing it, questioning it, 
or in terms of amal, that when he has verbally enjoined upon us a course of action, we should not leave that course of action, because that means we are preferring our voice over his, we are raising our voice over his. So this ayah has also been understood to indicate ittiba'i sunnah hadith. Another meaning of this ayah has been understood that when a hadith are being taught, so if you go to a dars of hadith, somebody sitting in a classroom of hadith, or even you sit in the masjid sometimes, some imams after some salah recite hadith, you should not talk at that moment. You can leave that gathering if you want to go and talk or talk on your cell phone, but if you're in a gathering in which the words of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam are being recited, then you should not raise your voice above them because Kalami Rasul, whether he recites it or the Sahaba recites it or any muhaddith or scholar today recites it or any student of Hadith narrates it to you, it's still the words of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. And then, Rabbi Abu Bakr ibn Arabi, who has written this famous book, Kitab al-Shifa, which has been translated into Urdu and into English, but nobody reads it, unfortunately, right? Much to the dismay of the translators, they would never have known that they put so much effort to translate it into Urdu and nobody in Pakistan reads it, and then they translate it into English and the English-speaking people in Pakistan read it. This is a wonderful book by Qazi Iyad uh, that uh, Qazi Iyad that he wrote about the adab towards Sayyidina Rasulullah and his character. So in that he has written that even when you go to the Rosa, the resting place of the Prophet a person should not speak loudly. A person should speak softly. So certain people, you will see certain people sometimes wearing green turbans or not. They want to engage in loud uh, group Salam with the Prophet and that is against the Adab because here Allah Ta'ala is saying that you should not speak to him loudly and when you are at the road in Madinah Munawra you are addressing the Prophet and you are speaking to him so you should not speak to him loudly you should speak to him softly okay and all of this what did Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala say that one, one, one thing that can possibly happen is that that you will lose all your a'mal. So this is the strong tone Allah Ta'ala is using with Sahaba Ikram. That if you continue to put yourself before the Prophet and proceed ahead of him, or raise your voice in front of him, or speak loudly directly to him, then all of your good deeds will go to waste. And literally means a'mal. Your brother goes to waste. Your jihad and uhud will go to waste. Your tahajjud will go to waste. Your fasting will go to waste. So that is crystal clear in this ayah. And there may be many, many multiple ways that this, uh, these meanings can be understood. But it shows in Quran al-Kareem how much Allah SWT has stressed adab to Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. So much so that Badri Sahabi are being told, all Sahabi are being told, that if they don't observe these adab, all of their a'mal will become null and void. So then me and you are nothing compared to those Sahabi Kram. Right? So we should be extremely, extremely careful that we don't do anything that is against the adab of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Then this notion of وَأَنْتُمْ لَا تَشْعُرُونَ means, number one, it originally means that your amal will go to waste and you won't even realize that your amal have gone to waste. That's the first way to translate it. But second way is to attach that to something earlier that don't raise your voices even though you don't realize it. Don't proceed in front of them even though you don't realize it. Again, all these meanings can be held simultaneously. So any of you who are new today, this is something that we've repeated many times in this series, that this is one of the mu'jizah, one of the beauties and miracles of Qur'an, that one 
text can have multiple meanings and layers of meaning simultaneously. You don't have to pick or prefer one over the other. All of the meanings are there in this ayah of Quran. That indeed those who are lowering their voices uh, in, when they are in the presence of the Prophet They are the ones who Allah SWT Now the first way to translate this Amtahana would be Allah has tested their hearts uh, for taqwa and they will have forgiveness with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a tremendous reward. Okay. So this again Allah Ta'ala said Fattakullah above. So this makes it clear that this is um, part of a person's taqwa that they lower their voice uh, in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Others have translated imtahana to mean that Allah Ta'ala has purified. What does it mean? That literally it means to test. But in this context, the test means to purify. What does it mean? Just as sometimes you test something by purifying it to check whether it's real gold. For example, you will test something. You will take an imtahan of something. And maybe the process of that test. So the example that is often given is that when you melt gold... You purify it from other alloys or impurities or metals that are in there. So that's a testing process. But at the end of that testing process, the gold comes out pure. So another way to translate this is then that the Sahaba Quran were tested by Allah SWT with these verses 1 and 2. And because they did amal on it, because they lowered their voices, then that means that they were purified from that test, purified by means of that test. And another aspect, which is something that we did earlier today in Surah Al-Fat, was that this is also mentioning the greatness of the Sahaba, because Allah Ta'ala is mentioning, and these were all of the Sahaba had this other for the Prophet That means all of Sahaba are muttaqeen, lahum maghfira, that means all of Sahaba are forgiven for anything, wa'ajrun adim, and all of Sahaba will have a tremendous reward. And what I mentioned to people before Zohar is that our Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, we will understand and take our understanding of Sahaba based on what Allah Ta'ala has said about Sahaba in Quran and what the Prophet has said about Sahaba in Hadith. We will not take our understanding of Sahaba from Ma'ar-Rakheen, from historians, because a historian may be fabricating an event, he may be narrating an event incorrectly, he may have bias, prejudice, sectarian bias and prejudice. So we will not accept anything that any historian has written about any Sahaba unless it is in accordance with what Allah Ta'ala has said about Sahaba in Quran and what the Prophet has said about Sahaba in Hadith. And from the Quran and Hadith it is absolutely unanimously, irrefutably clear that all the Sahaba were Mu'mineen and all the Sahaba were Muttaqeen and that Allah Ta'ala was pleased with all of the Sahaba and Allah Ta'ala forgave all of the Sahaba and that same Allah Ta'ala knows that everything that's going to happen after the Prophet passes away right up till the age and the end of the age of Sahaba to when the last Sahaba passes away Allah Ta'ala knew all of that he's well knowing of the future even when he declares Quran so it means that Sahaba even if they may have had certain differences of opinion with one another and that may have led them to exercise those differences against one another but they are still mu'mineen still muttaqeen still pleasing to Allah Ta'ala still forgiven by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Okay, now verse number 4 is the verse about which this surah has been revealed. I mean, the name of the surah is named after this verse. إِنَّ الْذِنُّ يُنَادُونَكَ مِنْ وَرَاءِ الْحُجُرَاتِ 
أَكْثَرُهُمْ لَا يَعْقِلُونَ That indeed those who are calling you, they call the Prophet call out to you, مِنْ وَرَاءِ الْحُجُرَاتِ From outside the Hujurat, Hujurat were the, you can, you can translate them as rooms, but you can say they're the private chambers, they're the chambers of the Prophet and these were the Hujurat of the Ummahat of Mu'mineen. And I mentioned here that there's a museum in Hujurat, this plural of Hujra, and there's a museum in Medina Manawara, they have replicated this model, and you will be amazed to see how small those rooms are. I mean, the women today should see how, what size of accommodation Umahat and Mu'mineen were living in. Extremely small, or I don't know, like 0.1 Merla, I don't know what you would call it in your term. Extremely small, like a, like a walk-in closet. That was the size of these hujrat of the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen. Because Nabi, and we've done this before for you, it came in Qur'an that Allah Ta'ala had given them a choice. That would you like this world, or would you like Allah Ta'ala and the Akhirah? And they chose the path of zuhud, of abstinence from worldly comfort and pleasure. And they chose Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala and the Akhirah. So these hujrat were right next to uh, Masjid al-Nabwi. So when Sahaba Kram wanted to call out uh, to the Prophet they would be calling from outside of the hujrat. Alright, now when was this revealed? Uh, again, uh, some say that this was when some Bedouin, and then again there are multiple possible events in the hadith that one could link to this ayah. Once was there were some Bedouins, Arabi, who had came to Medina Manawara, to Masjid Nabui, and they wanted to meet the Prophet but they came in the time between Zohar and Asr, and so Sayyidina Rasulullah was in his Qaylullah, he was taking his afternoon nap. This is narrated in the Muslim Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal And they stood outside and they kept calling and kept calling and louder and louder and they said, Ya Muhammad Sallallahu come out and meet us. Come out and meet us. So they were calling very loud. So here what Allah Subhanahu said, أَكْثَرُهُمْ لَا يَعْقِلُونَ Which literally means the vast majority of them don't have sense. The vast majority don't have sense. It can mean two ways. Again, it can mean they don't have sense that this is a you know, they lack common sense, this is not the right way to call someone. It can also mean that they don't have sense, they don't realize they were so desperate to, yearning to meet their Prophet that they did it out of control, they did it when they were not fully in their senses, they weren't acting in their senses. You can translate this, uh, you can take a meaning from this in both ways. However, Allah says, If only they had exercised patience, until you had come out ilayhim to them, that would have been better for them. But But indeed, Allah is all forgiving, all merciful. So it means that it would have been better. Uh, but if a person does something, so this one lesson from this. Well, the first thing is that Allah Taala has forgiven them. So for their calling to the Prophet which was a source of inconvenience for Sayyidina Rasulullah which has been viewed by Allah SWT in this passage of Quran as a betrayal of other towards the Prophet Allah Ta'ala has forgiven them because He is the all-forgiving and the being of infinite mercy. Another thing that you have here is that Allah SWT mentioned something that that is khayr lakana khayr lahum that would be something that is better for them. So this is something that comes often in our deen that there are some paths and ways that are better. They are khair, they are afdal, they are awla, they are azka, they are atar, they are more noble, more pure, more blessed, more preferred to Allah subhanahu So what this means is that if a person unknowingly, unknowingly does what we call khilaf awla, khilaf to the khair, unknowingly doesn't, unknowingly goes against what Allah Ta'ala has preferred, 
then Allah Ta'ala will automatically forgive that. They will automatically get the forgiveness and mercy of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. If somebody knowingly, deliberately knows that there's a permissible way and there's the preferable way, and they leave the preferable way for the permissible way, then although it's not a sin doing what's permissible, but from going, stepping down from the preferable to permissible, obviously they will lose some closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they will lose some ajr and thawab, if they want to compensate for that loss, that at some point in my life I took the permissible route instead of the preferable route, so for that also they have to make istighfar, and they have to call upon Allahul Ghafoor, and they have to ask for forgiveness and seek the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is why the Muhaddisin have said, Sayyidina Rasulullah used to make istighfar a hundred times a day, not because he ever committed a sin, but because he was unsure that if every decision he made was at the utmost preferable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, maybe he did or said or decided something that was less preferable or maybe something that was permissible. And this is why all people should make istighfar. Nobody should think that, no, I don't even have any sins, but maybe we did something in a less than preferable way. Right, and then on the flip side for people like me and most of us, if one has to make istighfar for when they move from the preferable to the permissible, so people like us who move from the permissible to the prohibited, then imagine how much istighfar we have to make, how much forgiveness we have to seek from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and how much of His mercy we have to beg. So this covered verse number 1 and uh, verses 1 to 5, verse number 6. Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu So now you can see this is the third One, two, three Three, third time that Allah Ta'ala has mentioned this The surah is addressed to the believers over and over again In ja'akum fasikum That if a fasik comes to you And I will explain what that word means Normally it's just translated as sinner or sinful person If a fasik comes to you binnaba'in With any news, with any information, with a report Right? Uh, then what should you do? What you should do, you should verify it. Fatabayanu means you should seek clarification, make it clear, verify it, go after the facts. And uh, you should do that lest you harm a people. Means if you transmit that news without verifying it, then what would happen? You may harm a people out of ignorance. And literally means that morning will dawn upon you such that you will be remorseful and regretful of your action. By morning, literally, it's a kanaya. It means a metaphor that means that very soon, very soon you will become regretful for what you have done. Alright. So first thing is that what is this word falsik? Falsik in deen of Islam is not a curse or a gali you're supposed to use on one another. Fasik is the Quranic category of person, right? So we do have to understand for somebody who say, oh, only Allah knows who a Fasik is, then this verse would not have any meaning, right? Because the verse is telling you that when a Fasik comes to you, do A, B, C, D. And if you say, no, only Allah Ta'ala knows who the sinner is, only Allah knows what is in people's hearts, then how are you going to do amal on this ayah and many other things that pertain to ahkam, legal rulings, injunctions? So a Fasik. Right? As far as what's going to happen to somebody in the Akhirah, only Allah Ta'ala knows. As far as whose forgiveness and tawbah is accepted, only Allah Ta'ala knows. As far as what intention that person is doing sin, Allah Ta'ala knows. Fasik is somebody who openly does a sin. That is something that you will know. For example, you have a colleague at work who never prays. Again, the word fasik is not to be used as a gali or a curse word on them. 
Fasik in Arabic, it's a Quranic Arabic term, it's part of Quran, part of Deen. You cannot shy away from understanding the meaning of any word in Quran. Fasik means a person who openly and admittedly leaves the faraid and wajibat of deen. Any one of them or multiple of them. And anyone who openly does anything that is haram or prohibited in deen, whether they do so in a sinister, lewd way or in a civilized way, they take sips of champagne, it doesn't matter, that would be Quranic category, they will be called a fasik. Anybody who openly, admittedly doesn't do what's required in deen, doesn't mean you have to be mean to them, condemn them, you can't do anything to them other than what Allah Ta'ala has said in Qur'an about a fasik. So this means that yes, this is what Allah Ta'ala is teaching us Qur'an. Somebody who does not pray, or somebody who drinks, these are just two examples I'm giving you. And unfortunately, these two examples are increasingly prevalent in the English educated elites of this country, right? But can be any act of fisk, anyone who openly, admittedly, unabashedly leaves and it does not comply to the requirements of deen, or openly does something that is prohibited in deen, is called a fasik by Allah Ta'ala in Qur'an. And Allah is giving us hidayah in this book of hidayah for a few things about them. And number one, so no, yes, you must love them, make dua for them, make dawah for them, all of that is there. But if they come to you with a naba, if they come to you with any information, with any report, with any news, then you can't take it on face value. They are not trustworthy because they were able, not amin with, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They don't fulfill their amana with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They were not trustworthy to their pact of being a believer in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're not complying with the requirements of deen. They're sinning despite their being believers. So you cannot take what they say on face value. You have to verify it. Right? Verify it may be very simple. They say it's raining. You can look outside and say it's raining. It may be more detailed, maybe more complex. But either way, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said you must verify it. Lest if you accept that and either transmit that information onward or make a decision based on that information, you may actually end up harming a community. And qawm can mean the entire qawm of the ummah, can mean any family, community, locality, nation, can be anything. Bijahala, because actually you acted on the basis of ignorance. Because the information that is brought to you by a falsic that is not confirmed and verified does not constitute knowledge. If it's not knowledge, then it is jahala. And then what will happen, you will regret your actions very soon and very soon and very shortly. So this is one lesson uh, generally from this ayah. In this case, I first gave you the general lesson of the ayah. Okay. Then... Um, Different commentators again have mentioned different particular incidents due to which this verse was originally revealed, notwithstanding its general meaning and ruling. So here one is a little bit long, but one incident is that uh, when the leader of the Banu Mustalik tribe, Sayyidina Ibn Zarar, he, uh, Harith Ibn Zarar, he came, uh, his, his daughter was Ummul Mu'mini Jubairiyah Badiyatana was one of the wives of the Prophet So he came to the Prophet and the Prophet invited him towards Islam and asked him to pay zakah. So he narrates about himself Sayyidina Harith ibn Zarar, also in the Muslim of Ahmad, that I accepted Islam and then I pledged to pay zakat and I said to the Prophet that I will go back to my people, my tribe, the Banu Mustalik and I will invite them to Islam and also invite them to pay zakah. 
and those who will accept my invitation to Islam and pay zakat, I will collect them. And then I asked the Prophet so then on, on particular day of a particular month, there's not mentioned on a particular day of a particular month, somebody should come to me from Medina Manawra to Bani, the Kabila of Bani Mustalik and collect that zakat from me, sent a collector. So when Sayyidina Harith did this and he went back and invited some people and some people accepted Islam and they paid zakat and he collected the zakat but when the collector of zakat did not arrive on the designated date and then a few days passed and it still didn't arrive so on his own he got afraid that Sayyidina Rasulullah may be angry with me maybe there's some reason the Prophet displeased with me because if the Prophet said he would send somebody on this date, on this month surely he would do so but what had happened was that on the way, the Prophet sent Walid ibn Uqba had sent him to collect the zakat on the, and to arrive there on that particular day and on that particular month. However, uh, unbeknownst to the Prophet and Sayyidina Walid ibn Uqba also, perhaps you can say, should have told the Prophet this, but he didn't because the Prophet told him to do something and I'll do it, right? Actually, Walid ibn Uqba in Jahiliyyah, before he was a mu'min, he had had a lot of enmity with the people of Banu Mustalak. So this also shows that you have to inform. He should have told Sayyidina the complete information. But he thought that his job was at the Sahaba, the Prophet tells me to do something, I do it. Right? So he went. Now when he was on his way, he started thinking about this. That these are my old ancestral ancient enemies. And I will be showing up there. And okay, some of them are believers, but some of them are not believers. And when I show up, what will the non-believers do with me? So he started getting afraid that they may kill him. So then what happened that he went back to... Uh, the Prophet ﷺ. He went back to Medina Manora. And he went back to Medina Manora. Now he makes another mistake. What does he do? He goes to the Prophet ﷺ and he says that, uh, uh, you know, they're refusing to pay zakat and they want to kill me. So when the Prophet ﷺ heard this, so then he sent Sayyidina Khalid ibn Walid He sent Sayyidina Khalid ibn Walid with a group of uh, Mujahideen on their way. Now what happened is that meanwhile, Harith ibn Dinar. Harith ibn Zirar he thought that okay maybe go investigate maybe Suhasam is angry with me he hasn't sent someone so he was on his way with a group of people to Medina Manawra and then the two groups met somewhere near Medina Manawra so Sayyidina Harith said oh Khalid ibn Zirar where are you going? and Sayyidina Khalid ibn Zirar said I've been sent to you and do jihad against you by name and you and your people Allah Akbar so then Sayyidina Harith got even more worried and said, for what purpose? And then they said that, you know, you refused to pay the zakat to Walid and you sent him back and you threatened to kill him. So Sayyidina Harith said, no, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't. Uh, I, swear, I, swore, I swear by Allah and his messenger that Walid never came to us, nor did I ever see him, nor did anyone come. In fact, I was getting scared that the Prophet was angry with me. So then, this for I have come here. So here then when he went to Sayyidina Rasulullah, sallam. Uh, and uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then uh, revealed this verse. Alright? Now, what does this mean? Uh, so this means that uh, what happened was that the Sahaba, Sayyidina Walid, uh, rather he made a mistake that Allah ta'ala forgave him for. Uh, I mean, that's the whole rest of the story. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgave him for because he did so out of fear and you know, some people are like that, that when they're very scared for their life, then they come back and they make a story. So what Allah subhanahu wa in a sense, if you accept that original as the original case for this verse, what I'm saying is that that hadith may be separate, this verse may be separate, right? There's no way you can say for sure. But if you feel that that hadith is tied to this verse, then what it means is that Allah subhanahu is telling the Prophet and Sahaba that when somebody comes to you, you have to verify their information, all right? 
you have to verify the information before you take such an action that you will uh, regret or you will um, feel sad about in the next morning. Alright. Then, uh, some have taken this all the way up to the revel, uh, level of um, messages, even somebody sending gifts on behalf of someone that you have to check, did that person really send that gift? Is this message really there? Alright? Uh, still, uh, you know, some of you may have this question about Sayyidina Walid ibn Uqba, that is he being referred to a Fasik here in this ayah? So like I told you, number one, uh, we don't, can not necessarily know that this ayah was about that particular hadith. Number two, that already Allah Ta'ala has just said previously that to the Sahaba they will have maghfirah, right? So they will be forgiven. So if they made a mistake, right, there is no Sahaba who did any mistake other than they deep, desperately from their heart sought the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did accept and grant them forgiveness and accept their repentance. Right? So this is uh, a general ruling. Uh, about the Samakram, and this is also a general ruling from this ayah that we have to confirm the information that comes to us, right? If it comes to us from somebody. And it may, if you want to look at that hadith, then it may also mean that before you make a decision, uh, you need to get confirmation. Okay, verse number 7. Rasulullah, that you should know well that Nabiya Karim Sussam is in your midst, that he is amongst you. Lo yudi ukum fi kathirim min al-amri that there are many matters uh, if he obeys you in many a matter then what will happen la anittum then you will certainly fall into difficulty walakinna Allah hababa ilaykum al-imana however Allah subhanahu wa has made iman beloved to you wazayyanahu fi qulubikum and Allah ta'ala has made iman attractive to you in your heart وَكَلَّهَا إِلَيْكُمُ الْكُفْرَ And Allah has made kufr disbelief repugnant to you. وَالْفُسُوكَ And has made sin, sinful disobedience. So kufr is disbelief and fusuk is sinful disobedience. And Allah has made sinful disobedience. isyan And rebellion. All of these things as or and sin and disobedient rebellion repugnant to you. And such people are those who are rightly guided. But where did they get that hidayah? Fadlam min Allahi as a bounty and blessing and grace from Allah subhanahu ta'ala wa ni'matan and a gift from Allah subhanahu ta'ala wallahu aliman hakim. Indeed Allah subhanahu ta'ala is all knowing and all wise. Alright. Here, first Allah SWT is reminding the mu'mineen of their tremendous, this first tremendous blessing that Allah SWT sent them that you have the Prophet in you, in your midst. Right? That itself is a blessing. This is what elsewhere Allah SWT said in Surah Al-Imran verse 164. That indeed Allah SWT sent a special favor and grace on the mu'mineen. That when Allah SWT sent amongst them and admits them in their midst a prophet min anfusim from their own selves. He who recites to them his verses of revelation, and purifies them, and teaches them the book and teaches them wisdom. So this is a great grace that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent on Nabiya Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now here Allah ta'ala in, in 
following up a surah we did a few surahs ago, surah Shura, that it means that if the there are many matters that if the Prophet accepted your Shura on every one of those matters, then actually you would have been placed in difficulty. You would have been placed in hardship and difficulty if Nabi Karim Sassam had accepted all of your advice. So it means that maybe sometimes uh, Sahabi Kram, uh, what Allah is simply saying here is that the Prophet decision is what is best. And the rabd some have taken between this eye and the earlier one is if that the Prophet had, if, if when he sent Khalid ibn Walid, when this matter had not been cleared and he had accepted the words of what Sayyidina Walid, then there would have been a huge difficulty for certainly for those Sahaba Bani Mustaq to face Khalid ibn Walid is a huge difficulty. Uh, it would have been a huge difficulty for them. So some have taken this verse as a direct connection, verse number 7, as a direct connection with verse 6. So what happens, what Allah Ta'ala is also giving an ishara here that because outwardly if you connect it with verse 6 the Prophet did listen and dispatch the army, right? So Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala will protect the Prophet and the Ummah from following any such misinformation either by revealing something directly on the heart of the Prophet that took place many times that the Bihikram himself would realize to change course or Allah Ta'ala would create circumstances, as in this case, right, that they happened to meet in Medina and had this conversation and Sayyidina Haratullah was able to clear himself. Allah Ta'ala would create circumstances and events to see to it that all of those misunderstandings are clarified. And this, all of that is happening simply due to the barakah of having Sayyidina Rasulullah in their midst. And that's why, yes, when people say that we are not in Zamana Nabuwa or we are distant from Zamana Nabuwa, it is something real. Not having the Prophet on earth made the people on earth mahroom of an incredible blessing and grace in favor of Allah SWT and the help and guidance of Allah SWT. And some again have taken this figuratively and the less and the more and more you have his sunnah and seerah in your midst, in yourself, in your heart, in your breast, in your home, in your family, in your community, then the more and more barakah you will have and Allah Ta'ala will clarify misunderstandings and see to it that bad circumstances don't take place. But the less and less, not, not only is he not physically in our midst, but if the less and less we have his teachings, his sunnah and legacy in our midst, then the more and more we will have do things that we regret in the morning, very soon regret the next day, make decisions that on the basis of incorrect information end up with misunderstandings, long-term misunderstandings, outstanding misunderstandings. And certainly uh, much of the ummah is suffering in that sense uh, with lots of misunderstandings and enmities for one another. So, next part of this ayah is again, now literally this is first being mentioned about Sahaba, although many ulama mufassrun say it's for all of the mu'mineen but again, who are the Sahaba? they are people who Allah Ta'ala has made iman beloved to them now that person who Allah Ta'ala makes iman beloved to them, can they ever leave iman? can we ever accept any sectarian ideology that is going to tell us that no, these, these Sahaba were disbelievers, and Allah Ta'ala is saying in the Quran we can never accept anything a person says when it's so outright against Qur'an. Every single Sahaba is such that Allah Ta'ala made Iman beloved to them. This irrefutable, irreversible. That Allah Ta'ala has done so many times in Qur'an. مَا Allah Ta'ala guides. There's no one who can misguide them. Whom Allah Ta'ala lets go astray. There's no one who can guide them. So Sahaba Ikram were those people who were guided by Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And there is no force that can lead them astray. 
So Allah Ta'ala has made Iman beloved to them, and Allah Ta'ala has made it not just beloved, plus and has made Iman beautiful in their hearts, has adorned their kulub with Iman. This is also an ashara that the ulama take from this ayah, that Iman is something that lies in the qalb. The passion of Iman, the beauty of Iman, the attraction of Iman is something that lies in the heart of the ruh. Qalb means our spiritual heart, which means they had heartfelt Iman. And it means that these three things, right, should be suggested that the Sabah are ultimately going to be purged of all of these three things. Even if they make a mistake, they are forgiven by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They are purged from what? From kufr, which is outright disbelief and denial in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And from uh, fusuq, which is immorality and sin. And isyan, which means disobedience or rebellion. They have been purified from all of these things. And they are ulaika hum. So hum means the all jamaat of sahaba. Indeed, they sahaba are ar-rashidun. Right? They are rightly guided. And this was a fuzzle that was sent upon them by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And a bounty and a blessing. Indeed, Allah ta'ala is all-knowing and all-wise. In one hadith in Bukhari, just so we can see how we can get this zenit of Iman in our heart, Sayyidina Rasulullah said that a person who does three things will taste the sweetness of Iman. Number one, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam are more beloved to him than anything else. Number two, when a person loves another person only for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And number three, he or she hates to return to kufr or an act of kufr, or an act of sin, or a life of sin, as much as he or she, she would hate to be cast into a fire. It means that this, like they would never, ever, ever let themselves ever go near a physical fire, and go be in it, just like that they would never, ever let themselves go near disbelief or sin. So if a person has these three feelings in their heart, then they will taste the sweetness of iman. This is a hadith of Sayyidina Rasulullah wasallam. Now verse 9 is very important verse of Qur'an al-Karim. And again, I can relate all of this to Sahaba. Unfortunately, most of you weren't here in the morning, but in Surah Al-Fat, we also, a lot in there, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned the Sha'an of Sahaba. In fact, if a person understands Sahaba through Surah Al-Fat and Surah Al-Hujurat, any from Qur'an, then you will be immune to all of the propaganda that Orientalist, non-Western, sectarian historians have I love to banter about on the internet in their books. What does Allah Subhanahu say in verse number nine? Wa in ta'ifatani min al-mu'minina that when two groups, you can translate it as when, you can also translate it as if, if ever, but you can say whenever two groups min al-mu'minin from amongst the believers min al-mu'minin that when they fight with one another. And here, this is qatl, not even kital. So you can say when they fight and kill one another, فَأَصْلِهُ بَيْنَهُمَا Then you should do sulah between the two of them. You must reconcile and bring about peace between the two of them. So if two parties of believers fight and kill each other, then you must make peace between the two of them. فَإِمْ بَغَتْ إِحْدَاهُمَا عَلَى الْأُخْرَى then if after that, making that peace, then one of those two bakhat, you can say, transgresses or rebels against, uh, you could even just say, acts unjustly, 
act unjustly towards al-ukhra, towards the other, then faqatilu, then it doesn't mean kill, I will explain to you, katil is kill and kital is to fight, then you should put them down aggressively, allati tabghid, you should put down aggressively the side that is acting unjustly, the side that transgresses, hatta tak until the matter goes back and returns to the command and decree of Allah subhanahu and then if they return then بَيْنُهُمَا then again you should make peace between the two bin adli with justice وَأَقْسِتُ and treat them equitably Indeed, Allah Subhanahu loves those who treat others equitably, fairly. Also, you can say justice, treat others equitably, fairly, and justly. Then what Allah says in verse number 10, إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِخْوَةً إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِخْوَةً Indeed, the believers are brethren to one another. فَأَصْلِهُ بَيْنَ أَخَوَيْكُمْ And therefore you should reconcile between your brothers. وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ And you should fear Allah subhanahu wa لَأَلَّكُمْ تُرْحَمُونَ So that Allah subhanahu wa mercy may descend upon you. Alright. Now, why did I say this is so important? Okay. Again, many incidents, uh, sorry, not many incidents, uh, here, as far as this verse goes, there are basically two opinions on this verse, in terms of the occasion of revelation. The first is that yes, there was some incident in which two Muslim groups would have been fighting and killing one another, uh, but no one has really mentioned specifically what that incident is. Second view is that no, this is referring outwardly calling the mu'mineen, but there was one set were munafiqeen, one set were mu'mineen. If you take that position, then there are quite a few incidents that different commentators have mentioned. Third position, which is the position that our own scholars and my own opinion is according to this, is that this is that one verse that many ulama of tafsir say that never was actually practiced in the life of the Prophet and this verse only manifested after he passed away in the battles that you know about, Battle of Safin, what you call the Battle of the Camel, the battles between the Sahaba Ikram with Sayyidina Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu karamallahu wajhu and many Sahaba on one side and Ummu Mu'maneen Sayyidatana Aisha radiallahu on one side. And this is always one of the most confusing and confounding things to every soft-hearted, sensitive believer, man and woman, every student of Islam. Everyone is confused about this, right? Because you think that they were Sahaba. How could Sahaba even argue with one another? Let alone even fight with one another. Let alone draw swords against one another. Let alone kill one another. Which actually happened, right? So, the, the fear of this ayah that we prefer is that because this verse had to happen. And this verse was never practicable in the life of the Prophet because it would have been a blemish on his nubuwa. Because like I said, there's no incident at all of Muslimin and Muslimin doing this in the life of the Prophet. You can have Munafiqin and Muslimin, yes. There's no incident at all of any believers in the lifetime of the Prophet fighting and killing one another. Not one incident. And why did Allah subhanahu not make that happen? Because that would be a blemish on Nabuwa. All of the Oriental scholars today, all the non-Muslims would say that, look, even when he was alive as a Prophet, right, can you imagine? 
in the field days of CNN and Fox would have with that, that even when their Prophet was alive, believers would kill one another. Hmm? So Allah Ta'ala to save the Ummah and the Prophetism in particular from that blemish and stain, this ayat never was practicable. You said it was never how do you explain it in English? We say it was never It never manifested itself in outward reality in the time of the Prophet However, Allah Ta'ala in Quran had to give Kamal Hidayah. And although this will never happen in the life of the Prophet, that believers may fight with one another to an extent that it reaches killing, it is something that may happen. And Allah Ta'ala obviously has infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom, knew it was going to happen. So the hidayah for everything has to be in Qur'an. At least the basic usul for everything is in Qur'an. Or the Qur'an will point you to other sources of hidayah. So what is the teaching then that Allah Ta'ala is giving us? So Allah Ta'ala is giving us this teaching in Qur'an that when two groups of mu'mineen fight and kill one another, make sulah. That never happened in the time of the Prophet, that happened in the time of Sahaba. Most important thing you will get from this ayah is this word, Ta'ifatani min, min al-mu'mineen. What does it mean? Clearly, unequivocally, irrefutably, the Arabic language, remember Qur'an and Arabiya. Qur'an must be understood, its meanings according to the language of Arabic, the rules of Arabic grammar. Min comes for tabyid, it means, and it comes for bayan. So it can mean both things, that the two groups are both from mu'mineen. What does it mean? That even their act of fighting and killing one another doesn't put any one of them outside of imam. They're both still mu'mineen. So for anyone to take the position that one side are mu'min and one side are kufr because they were killing one another, that goes against Qur'an al-Kareem. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that both of the two, and ta'ifatani is the dual, which you don't have in Northern English, it's not the plural form, not the single form, the tethniya dual form. If two group and the two of them are both min al-mu'mineen, they are both from the mu'mineen, if you take min for bayan, that could even be, if anything, stronger, Allah Ta'ala is saying, nil mu'mineen. I mean, it would be the two groups of mu'mineen. Because min is just for bayan. So either way, the Qur'an irrefutably establishes that both groups during and after the qatl remain mu'mineen. No one enters kufr because of this act. Yes, it's not a good thing to do. It's not saying that. But it doesn't put them outside the pale of Islam. Alright? Then the teaching in here. So this is again. So we are going to take understanding of history from the Quran. We're going to take understanding of history of Sahaba from Quran al-Kareem. When Allah Ta'ala in Quran has said that both of them are mu'mineen, we can never raise our voice or finger at any one Sahaba or any side of Sahaba or any group of Sahaba. And any sectarian ideology that does that is against Quran as an outside Islam. We can't even call such a view a sect of Islam. We have to call such a view outside Islam. Because it's against Quran. There's no sects in Quran. There's no, we're not like Christians, we have multiple versions of Quran. There's one Quran. And especially, we're not talking about a verse that is open to multiple interpretation. We're not talking about a verse that is ambiguous language. We're talking about a verse that is crystal clear in terms of its language and sentence structure. That does not hold room for any other interpretation other than the fact that both groups are mu'mineen, notwithstanding the fact that they did that qatam. And if you look at the rest of the ayah, also was practiced in history, that that's how did the fighting end? Through sulah, exactly what happened. Exactly what happened, sulah took place. And although the rest of it didn't happen in the time of the Sahaba, but Allah Ta'ala continues, that if any one group transgresses against the other, then fight. So who? 
then the adjudicating body, the one who made the peace, if one group violates the peace, then not kill, but here's Kital, but now you should, with aggression, you should forcibly put down their violation of the sulha until again they return to the commandment of Allah Ta'ala, until they return to that sulha. And then when they do, then reconcile between them again with the justice and equity for Allah Ta'ala loves yuhibbul muqsiteen. And every historian also should remember this ayah. Allah Subhanahu loves those historians who are just and fair and equitable in their narratives of what happened in history. And any historian who is motivated by ideological, sectarian, bias, prejudice, bigotry, then their history is not viewed as a just and equitable and fair and honest account of what transpired. And then Allah Ta'ala then in verse 10 lays down the ultimate rule that in the mu'mineen ikhwa, and this is for men and women, so in that sense, does it mean because I've told you before we don't like it, uh, I don't like this, and a lot of Muslims in America uses brothers and sisters. I always say men and women. Right? Even somebody wants to put brothers and sisters and they get sort of, why are you writing brothers and sisters? If you put that, then Waji will go in one gate and Zainab and Saleh will go in the other gate. Right? You have to put men and women. Right? Men and women. But yes, the believing men have a certain sense of brethrenship with the believing women in that sense that we share Nisbat the Imam. So what does that mean? Now that's not something small. That means any believing man should be willing to die to preserve the izzat of any mu'minah if he was ever put, not just his wife or his mother or his daughter or his niece, any mu'minah we would be willing to die for izzat. What is that? That's in a mu'minun ikhwa. That's what it means. That's what it means. In the supportive sense. In the benefact, bene, benefaction, benediction sense. Not in the violation of gender interaction sense. That's what Allah subhanahu means here. Right? And it means that they live in peace and justice and equity and fairness with one another. What's in Umar in his time, a woman, she walked from Yemen to Medina Manawra and she felt that my izzat was so... She, it was a necessity due to which she had to do so. And Sayyidina Umar reprimanded her. That why did you travel alone without a such a distance? And she presented her dire need and necessity to him. And then he said, okay, well, how was your journey? Right? Then he asked her. And she said, I felt like everybody was a brother and sister to me. That doesn't mean she talked to every single man along the way and sat with him without hijab. And, and no, it means that the aman and itminan, the support, the security that I had was as if I was just walking in my own one compound of one big family. That's what this means. The mu'mineen are all supportive of one another. Helpers of one another. Patrons of one another. Benefactors of one another. Alright? And therefore, given that that's what we're supposed to be, if ever we leave that, and even we go to such an extreme of fighting, and then go to such an extreme that fighting leads to killing, فَأَصْلِهُ بَيْنَا أَخَوَيْكُمْ then you must reconcile, must remind them that who and what they are, and must reconcile them, and that's what happened. And those, all the Sahaba were reconciled and lived happily ever thereafter. And that's absolute fact. The Sayyidina Ali and Umm Manish Sayyidina Aishirvandana lived in absolute peace, love, harmony ever thereafter. Kamil Sulha. So every aspect of this ayah Allah Ta'ala made come out in the most how you say the most forthright way outright fighting outright killing outright sula and outright adal and outright gist after that and uh, istikamat on that sula so all of that what was manifested and in fact some of us really even went so far to say is that because Allah Ta'ala put this in Quran then it had to happen 
Now, the, if you can't have in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu what is the second best model for us? Saba. So actually it had to happen in Saba. It had to not happen in the lifetime of the Prophet because it would have been blemish and nabuah. And it had to happen in the time of the Sahaba because other than the Prophet they are the best model for how to do amal of Qur'an. The apparent outward amal living example of Qur'an is in the life of the Sahaba. So everything had to happen. Achieve, right? So you see the ulama of Tafsir have a whole different way of looking at history compared to all these sectarian historians. Our deen is not deen of history. Our deen is a deen of Quran, of Sunnah. Our deen is a deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Prophet sallallahu Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, other lessons then taken for the rest of the Ummah from the cities. That if this happens within an Islamic state, right? So the power that's going to do the sulha is obviously the Amir is the leader of the Islamic State, or whoever the Amir may have appointed in his place, the judge or magistrate, or whoever it may be, but it means it's the duty of the Islamic State to preserve this peace, and yes, to use very only to the extent absolutely required, to use force to put down any such aggression, or sedition, or division, or rebellion. Alright? Anything else we want to tell you about this before we go on? Okay, some have also taken, but it, it maybe it's again a bit too bit. Political, I suppose, but what? And but it's a relevant thing because you see this happening all over the world today. What? Uh, to what extent can Muslim groups revolt and rebel against the Muslim ruler? Right. Now, this is a very long topic, long discussion, and really, I think one of the problems that today people in 2012, when they read these classical texts, where the jurists have expressed their political thought, but they don't understand when the jurists are talking about politics and statecraft and civil war and relations between the citizens and the state and the leader, they are talking about their particular time, which is an age of empire, an age of Islamic courts, an age of qadi, an age of sharia, law, right? And it's very difficult to say that the same thing is going to apply today, right, to um, the situation that you find yourself in now, uh, so it's very difficult to draw lessons from some of the classical texts on this. But I would just say that some of the classical texts have said that part of the sulha is if a major party uh, rebels against the Muslim leader, so in all likelihood it is because the Islamic leader has failed in some way to satisfy his citizens and he should first, before he uses this force to put down the rebellion, he must grant them an audience and listen with an open ear and heart to what is the reason for which they're having this revolution and rebellion and he, if he is willing to make sulha, if he, but generally, not somebody fakely posturing and saying, okay, I'll bring about reforms, but if he genuinely makes reforms and there's certain checks on that, then the rebellion movement has to quell, has to calm down and has to allow him the chance to uh, make those reforms and make those amendments.
I'll just read out a passage for you from a tafsir, Ahkam Quran in Arabic, uh, and that is that uh, Allah Qurtubi, uh, Ta'ala, has written in that it is not permitted to attribute categorically and with certainty to any of the Sahaba that they were acting in the wrong in, in their action, because each of them was acting according to their own understanding and their objective was to seek the pleasure of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. The Sahaba, each and every one of them, are all our leaders. And it is enjoined upon us that we should hold back our tongue from talking about their mutual differences and divergences that they had and rather always speak the best things about them. Because being a companion of the Prophet itself is a high honorable position which can never be violated. The Holy Prophet has prohibited us to revile them or talk bad about them and has informed us and has the Quran that they have been forgiven and that Allah is pleased with them. Alright? Alright, so then we can, I think, conclude this topic uh, over here. Verse number 11. Next teaching in Surah Al-Hujrat, verse number 11. Ya ayyuhalladina amanu, again Allah Ta'ala addressing what you believe. لا يسخر قوم من قوم أسا أن يكونوا خيرا منهم ولا نساء من نساء أسا أن يكون خيرا منهن ولا تلمزوا أنفسكم ولا تنابزوا من أطلب بالألقاب بأس الاسم الفسوق بعد الإيمان ومن لم يتم فأولئك هم الظالمون So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to seize another other Basically the prohibition of ridiculing and mocking one another So you who believe you should not ridicule or mock others, right? And here, it's not just saying other believers. It's saying you should not mock any people. Why? Because these people, they may, it may happen that the latter are better than the former. Means the ones being mocked are the ones are better than the mockers. And then Allah specifically also says for the women that similarly it does not befit that women should not ridicule or mock other women because again these may be better than they are. And don't defame one another. Uh, don't defame and find fault with one another. Nor should you call one another insulting nicknames. And then Allah Ta'ala said evil bitsal ismi. Evil is that name. Uh, indeed it is evil. Mm, evil. It is evil to be named with the name of sin, evil it is to be labeled with the name of sin after Iman, and those who don't repent, وَمَنْ لَمْ يَتُبَ who don't do Tawbah, أُولَاكُهُمْ الظَّالِمُونَ Indeed, these are wrongdoers, these are oppressors. Okay. So in the first beginning of the surah, Allah Ta'ala mentioned some of the rights of the Prophet in terms of Adab. Then we had this notion of Adab between fellow believers. Then Allah Ta'ala said we are equal to one another. And now Allah Ta'ala is going to rights between believers and Prophet and believers and believers. And now between believers and humanity. Now between believers and all of humanity. So it's getting outward, it's spiraling outward into umum. Should not mock or ridicule one another. So these are social Teaching social laws that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is teaching us here in Quran al-Karim. Alright, so the first thing is that, um, I mean you can get an ashara from here that men should not mock men and women should not mock women. So clearly there's some gender segregation going on, right? That the teasing that's being taken place in this gathering is men amongst men and women amongst women. So that's also an ashara here in Quran al-Karim. Khair, 
no one should mock a person. And this is referred to specifically use of the tongue. Right? So this is first social evil that is being prohibited here. Don't ridicule someone, mock someone, be snide, sarcastic, cynical. Now that command stands in of itself, but then Allah Subhanahu gives one reason that maybe they're actually better than you. It can mean maybe they're better than you. It can mean maybe they can become better than you. Maybe you are mocking them today, but actually tomorrow Allah Ta'ala will give them a darajah that is better than yours. And then where will you be? And then if they follow your philosophy, they will just mock you back. And then there will just be this constant back and forth reviling and mocking and, and criticizing. And this is not what Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala wants. It's also that a person who mocks others and finds faults in others and mocks others means that they think that they are superior and they are better and they have nothing within them that should be mocked. So this is why then Allah SWT mentioned the second ruling here which is that don't find faults with others. It can mean defame others, don't find faults others. This is the major teaching of our deen that even if you come to know about somebody's flaws and faults, you're not supposed to First of all, you should not search them out. You should not be looking for them, trying to find them. And secondly, if inadvertently, unwittingly, you become aware of them, you should not broadcast them, you should not expose them. That is called defamation. You should not defame that person. So there are two aspects uh, to this. Don't look for the faults in people and don't expose the faults of people. And here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the, the Arabic here doesn't say fault, find faults with others, it says find faults with yourselves. But this was the notion that mu'min are brethren. So that's what Allah when you find fault with somebody else, you're finding a fault with yourself because that's your fellow mu'min, that's your fellow believer. And this is what our deen has taught us, is that we cannot ridicule others, we cannot find fault with others. And if you ever find out, you're supposed to hide it, you're supposed to cover it. Some ulama have said that this specifically refers to people who used to mock and ridicule and find fault with people's physical appearances. So to insult someone because they were short or they were tall or they were fat or they were ugly or they were scarred or something like that. And some have mentioned even there were some maybe one or two instances of Sahaba who were maybe in jest mocking someone for calling somebody shorty or calling somebody something like that. So Allah subhanahu wa revealed this that no you shouldn't do that. When we take, and then when Allah SWT said, do not call each other by derogatory names, this is an example of don't call a Muslim a Fasik, don't call a Muslim a Kafir, don't call a Muslim a Zalim, and even for the non-Muslims, you should not use derogatory names, derogatory labels, mocking tone, ridiculing speech for them. Uh, this is not what befits the adab of a believer. And this is not the way Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu used to speak to non-Muslims or to fellow believers. And so as his ummah, you should not speak in that way as well. Some have also taken this as don't find fault with people means don't scold people over whom you don't have a position of authority to scold them with. What does that mean? That obviously, yes, there's certain tarbiyah and what we call tadi, whether it's parents or children or teachers and students, but you cannot go and scold every single person, right? And you find this, right, many times if you're standing in a gourmet bakery and the poor fellow doesn't do something correct, so Sait Saab Charja Gospar, Aapko Gwetarikai Niyata, Aap Ye Hai, Wo Hai, Wo Hai. No, if what you need to do, you can point out to the adab, the adab is not to vent your anger and frustration. 
The other business to go to that person who has that authority over him, go to the employer, go to the manager, go to the branch manager, right? Rather than, and you know, it's amazing the number of fights that take place. In, 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 and I have stopped going pretty much anywhere, but I remember from those days when I had to go to Gourmet and to Bank and to this and to that, fights are erupting all the time in this place, right? And so the other is not to, this is another mean that don't take someone to task if it's not your position and authority to do so. So yes, you could go and say nice to the branch manager that look, the teller behaved in such a way. Or go to the foreman and say, okay, look, your floor boy has behaved in such a way. As opposed to venting your anger, right? And if you have any sense, you will know that it doesn't have any benefit. When you have you can go back to the same gourmet the same next day and the shop boy will still do the same thing. It's not going to make any difference, right? And you should also, you know, you're expecting a higher level than you really... You haven't created a society which has given these poor people, you know, equitable income. Why are you expecting that they should give you the customer service that Qatar Airlines, the world's best airline, is going to give you? Why do you expect that from somebody in the society? When you haven't given them the society, you haven't given them the education, you have monopolized the wealth and resources in this country, you don't share the wealth, you don't spread the wealth, they don't have access to education, they don't have that happiness that you do. Why do you expect that every time you walk in with a sour face to a gourmet, you should be given world-class customer service, and if you're not given world-class customer service that gives you right to vent your frustration and anger on a poor fellow because he's of a lower economic class than you, the poor fellow has to sit there and take it and not even talk back to you. Right? <laughs> yes, but this is what I say, you know, so it's the kabr, it's kibr, it's the kibr, it's a shame, you know. It's the same, that's really some of the elites, their only interaction with the poor, instead of their interaction being with them in orphanages and schools and income redistribution and entrepreneurial activity, their only interaction is daunting them uh, in the shops. That's it. Right? And the way some of you scold your drivers also, Allah Kabira. Where you scold your drivers and household staff, absolutely unacceptable. I don't care who you are. You know? What are you expecting? Why are you expecting such world class service when you're oppressing someone and giving them sub minimum wage? You're giving them a wage that you would be embarrassed to tell every American friend of yours that you love to visit in the summer. Hmm? Next time you go to America, why don't you tell them the wages you pay your drivers and household staff and then see how nice they are to you? Tell them it's other Donald Trump. Amlan the Karana, the person who is, an, who is an authority, is allowed to scold. Uh, I have a bit of authority of you. You're sitting in front of me, right? No, it's, it's a lot of be'adbi. Don't think be'adbi is just the parents. A lot of the parents, elderly parents, who want their daughters to be and sons to be so kind to them, are so rude to their household staff. I'm amazed. Amazed. So rude. So rude. And of course, I mean. Or poor woman and poor man can't take it, you know. So this is against other. They're also mu'minin. They also found that it's not a class-based thing. They're also ikhwa. They're also ikhwa. All right. So to be a better other. Here, I think this is, um, you know. And some people. I was just one last thing. I'm gonna get off the topic. But some people excuse themselves. They say, "Ye mutse ho me me unsitas me gusakar mas me de doa kare." No, minat karak nupar. Pretend uh, your friend visiting from America is standing there watching you. Then tell me if you scold your driver. Right? Adab is front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah ta'ala is watching you. Allah ta'ala is watching. He sees how you behave. 
Why do you have haya in front of kuffar and you don't have haya in front of your own rabb? Hmm? Alright, okay. So the opposite of this is that, yeah, opposite of this means that you should talk to people in a kind way, obviously. You should call them by good titles and good names, right? You should conceal and hide their faults. You should not be a person of mocking, cynicism, sarcasm, uh, sarcasm, irony, etc., etc. All of that is here, that we should try and bring all of ourselves, me, myself, you, every one of us, with each other, with others, strangers, friends, to try to speak and interact with people in the best way possible. Verse number 12, as Ponta continues, again, Ya ayyuhalladina aman. That when we believe you must refrain from the vast majority of dhan Here dhan is mut, not being mentioned mutlaq, it means su'idha means bangumani means harboring suspicions about people Conjecturing about people's negative past or negative attributes And indeed some of that dhan that you do is outright sin, ism is sin some of that conjecturing and speculation that you do is in fact nothing less and nothing other than sin itself. And I think you have this word in Urdu as well. So it means do not spy on each other. Do not spy on each other. And you should not do riba. Yaktab is coming from that bab. If they are yaktab, do not do riba of one another. Ba'dukum ba'da, some of you of others Ayuhibbu ahadukum an ya'kul lahma akhi And this is something that you've heard that Maybe some of you didn't know, maybe this was in Quran Do any of you, would you love Really, Ayuhibbu, yahibbu from mahabba Would you love, would it be pleasing to any one of you That you eat the flesh, lahm is the meat And flesh akhi of your brother, meita of your dead brother Fakarahtimuhu, and you would surely you detest and hate such a thing. What taqullah, therefore have taqwa, fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Inna Allah tawabun rahim. Inna Allah tawabun rahim. Indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the most ever and always ready to accept tawbah. Always and ever relenting on those who turn to tawbah. And rahim is all merciful. So this is another major teaching in this ayah. So first, dhan means, number one, that means unfounded suspicion, baseless suspicion. That's how it starts. And then that also means su idan badgumani to harbor negative thoughts about someone. And this is also a big problem, right? Uh, a big problem that we distrust, have shak, have doubts, are unsure, don't have etimal. And the worst type of this dhan is to have dhan in deen. What is dhan in dunya, right? So to harbor suspicion about your colleague or to think negatively about your boss, employer, that's also included in this ayah. But even worse than that is to have negative dhan in deen. And this is something that people have and unfortunately a lot of people have about the ulama of deen, whether the ulama passed or the ulama who are alive. They harbor suspicions about them, they have doubts about them, they have negative thoughts about them. Right? So you have to purify yourself of these negative thoughts. The opposite of this is husnidhan, positive Feelings, good feelings, etimad, trust, reliance, dependence on people. You have to have those positive feelings. So this Allah Ta'ala has made clear and that some of the dhan is ism, some of it is outright sin. Alright. Uh, in fact, Sayyidina Rasulullah said that none of you should, and, and the worst, sorry, the worst bad zan in deen is to have a bad zan about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
We did that earlier this morning and I about that. To harbor evil thoughts about Allah. Which is, for example, why did Allah Ta'ala do this? Or why me? Why did Allah Ta'ala do this to me? Or why did Allah Ta'ala make the world like this? Or why does Allah Ta'ala allow such things to happen? Now if it begins as a very initial, in, inquisitive, exploratory plea to Allah Ta'ala, that may be okay, not so devastating. But when it is an outright complaint to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, it may even lead you, yes, to doubt the existence of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Then it can even end up all the way in atheism. So it begins with dhan. So the notion is that su idhan, negative thoughts, can lead to outright severing of ties. It can lead to sever our ties with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. It can lead to severing our ties with one another. To have negative thoughts about a person, to always be thinking negatively about a person. Okay, so this to be clear here, we're talking about negative dhan. Okay, obviously there's a positive dhan that people can have, which is husni dhan, that is obviously strongly recommended in deen. And sometimes it also happens that what we call something called dhanne ghalib, that's also a feature in deen, that if your predominant opinion, it comes in shriya for many things. For example, you're praying, you don't know, what it's my third rakah, it's my fourth rakah, you should use your dhanne ghalib. What is your preponderant opinion, your dominant opinion, that is a good thing. So to follow your dhanne ghalib, to follow husne dhan is good, to, but to follow negative dhan in this ayah Allah subhanahu wa has mentioned is very, very bad. Very bad. And some of it is outright sin. And you know, what happens also is that when you have a negative opinion of someone, sometimes it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. That you thought so negatively of them, you actually end up drawing out the worst in them. Because you're expecting the worst from them. Whereas we were supposed to be people who Mu'mineen, ikhwa means we're supposed to draw the best in one another by expecting the best in one another. And here if you want to know more about this type of stuff then late night after Tarawih I think I explained all these things in great detail in the series that we do. Right? But sometimes one friend with another, one wallama with another, one fellow seeker on the path with another if they have negative opinion and negative thoughts about one then they end up bringing out, bringing out the worst in one another. And then they have, then it ends up in the severing of ties. That is where su idan ends up. Then the next thing Allah Taala mentioned was do not spy, right? Well, let the justice who do not spy. So this is another of social evil. This is all about social evils that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is. What does spying mean? Don't try to actively discover and unveil somebody's faults. Don't try to unravel what somebody is doing. This is the opposite of this is what the Prophet said, Min husni islami tarku, min husni islami mar'i, tarku mala ya'nihi, that from the beauty and nobility and excellence of a person's deen is they leave things that don't concern them. What we say in English, mind your own business. So just as through getting into other people's business. Mind your own business, right? And people can't do that, right? Whether it's women or men, well somebody got a crawl, oh, where did he get the money for that? That's the just as right? And God forbid an alim of deen should have a corolla, right? Because for you, you, not you, but some people, not you, the good people, uh, some of the bad elites, they think that no alim, he should never have anything beyond the bicycle and motorcycle. If he has anything beyond the motorcycle, something must be wrong. And that's suizan, and therefore we must investigate into what type of fraud is going on, right? So not to spy. This also means not to look into other people's homes. This is the teaching of Sayyidina Rasulullah Very important that don't look into people's homes. And you know, I'll tell you honestly, this, it's unfortunate that people themselves don't have haya. 
Right? Looking into home till they're in their home. That's completely your fault if you look in their home. But if they're publicly revealing inappropriate things about themselves on Facebook, don't do it. Don't stalk them on Facebook. Don't surf them. Don't do that. Forget their publication. That was their mistake. That they've made things public in their public profile that they shouldn't. You shouldn't do it to justice about that. That why I met this guy. Let me Facebook him. And check him out. Right? And see what he's really up to. That's also on this. Even if they've exposed themselves for that to justice, the command is still for us. Don't go spying, prodding, prying, meddling, investigating, searching people's affairs. And certainly also this applies to people's past. Right? That you shouldn't be trying to pry into a person's past, Google somebody to discover their past life, right? Or searching about them or digging up dirt on them. All of this is something that should not be done. Alright? And then the next commandment here was what? Um, do not, yes, so do not backbite. Okay. What is backbiting? Backbiting means to say any single thing about a person when that person is not present that were they have to have been present, they wouldn't have wanted you to have said that. They wouldn't be happy that you said that. It may mean really something mean about the person. It may be something correct, but they just don't want you to be telling people that. They just don't want you to say that to other people about them. Maybe correct. Maybe even praising them in such a way. Right? They wouldn't want you to say that. That could also be backbiting. Once then Sahaba Kiram, they asked the Prophet a question. They said, Ya Rasulullah even if it's true, what if what we're saying about the person, we're not lying. Right? So the Prophet said, yes, even if it's true, because if it's untrue, it's namima, it's slender, which is a double sin, which is backbiting plus slender, lying. And even if what you're saying is true, okay, fine, you're not lying, you're saying it's true, right? But it's kriba, it's backbiting, it's something Allah SWT has prohibited. And Allah has used this very strong and very famous metaphor, I'm sure that all of you have heard, that it is like eating, it's like cannibalism. It's like eating their flesh on their back. When you say things about them behind their back. And this is something that people who are very have loose tongues, they're not able to, you know, stop this gossip and backbiting. In fact, there people there's some people who this is all they can do. They don't know how to have any other conversation. And stereotypically people used to say this is women, but now this is the case of men also. So when two people get together they talk about number the third, when three people get together they talk about the fourth. When three sisters get together, they talk about the fourth one who isn't there. When two brothers get together, they talk about the third one who isn't there. Right? When two fellow students get together, they talk about the third student who isn't there. When two professors get together, they talk about number three, four, five, six, seven who aren't there. Hmm? That's what they do. Right? Office talk or... And in, in Urdu, what is it? Gafshat. Right? You have ways of euphemizing it. Euphemizing means you give it a nice... You give a bad thing a nice name. You put a good label on a bad thing. Right? Or you call tabsira. Let's talk about tabsira chanrata. So it's bhajit. You even, will even call it bhajit. I'm just bhajit karate. I'm just bhajit karate. You're just conversing with one another. You're backbiting one another. Backbiting others. But you say we're just conversing with one another. So this is something you have to watch your tongue. It's not going to happen. Backbiting is not going to go on its own. You have to actively sometimes bite your tongue. You have to engage in tongue biting to stop backbiting. Siddhi Sibhati. Yes. Yes, some of you literally will have to bite your tongue. <laughs> literally, it's expression in English language. You may have to literally do it, bite your tongue, because we're so, it's, there's an adat. We're used to it, and we're desensitized to the sin. And that's why Allah Ta'ala, maybe perhaps knowing that people will be so desensitized to the sin, has used a very vivid uh, image for us to feel the horror of the sin, right? 
Because that's what the Muslim, you feel horror. That's a better way to translate instead of dislike. You would feel horror if you were made to eat somebody's uh, flesh of your dead brother, right? You would be horrified at that thought. So just like that, we should be horrified at backbiting, right? Okay, few rules about backbiting, right? Uh, number one, that this includes backbiting non-Muslims. That's also prohibited in the... Alright, if it's backbiting, right? Okay, second... Uh, if uh, there are certain cases in which speaking ill about someone has not been classified as backbiting. So I said that, I use specific English for that. I'm not saying there are certain cases where backbiting is okay. Backbiting is never okay. There are certain cases where speaking ill of someone in their absence has been allowed in Sharia. Number one. Uh, but it can never be an untruth. So this is obviously, you have to be speaking truly. Number one is that in any type of testimony or whether it's court case or it's out of court, to speak, some, to reveal some flaw about someone, but you have to be truthful and honest, but obviously you're saying something that they wouldn't want you to be saying, right? Uh, yes, you're not just allowed to do that. In certain cases, you're anywhere from allowed, recommended, to required to do that, depending on the particular case. Second, is to protect the Muslims, a Muslim, from the mischief or evil in someone so, for example, you can see somebody's getting A is getting close to B, and you know that A is not a good person, and A preys on innocent people. So you have to call B and sit them down and tell them that look, A has done this, this, this gerber. I'm not telling you this because I want to slander them. I'm not telling you. I'm telling you this to protect you from that. You need to know this about A. You are befriending someone and getting too close to someone without knowing. So that is also, and anywhere it can go from permissible to recommended to required. But in all of this, you must be true, absolutely honest. And number two, you must purify your intention that you're not gleefully slandering the person, but you're genuinely doing it to protect the person, protect others from that person's flaws. And the way to show that you have ikhlas, the way to make sure you have ikhlas, is you have to make dua for that person. That you have to make dua for the islah of that person. That whatever faults and flaws this person have, may Allah cure him of that. Right? And a fourth way is that if there's anyone, for example, who has misrepresented deen, right? If they're putting forth incorrect positions on deen, they're putting forth incorrect interpretations of sharia, then even in their absence, it is fard on the ulama to point out that person by name. Especially when that person has taken those positions publicly. So somebody goes on TV and says crazy things, it's fard upon us by name to refute the crazy things that they say. But we will never say anything about that person's character, or their family life, or their personality, or their persona. We will just critique their faulty position on the that's it right and and, and that that it doesn't count that is not going to be labeled as ghibat so these are a few things this covers verse number 12 now verse number 13 Allah tells us ya ayuhan nas verse numbers up to now we were dealing with ya verse number 13 ya ayuhan nas O humanity, O people, indeed we have created you from a single male and a single female. That's really what it means. That's what the tanween is for. Anzakarin and untha. The tanween is mukandar there for those of you who remember. So it means a single male and female. It means all of you, your human evolutional history goes back to Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam and Amahawa radiallahu anha and Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam himself his, neither, he had no father or mother, so Sayyidina Adam Islam was not descended from apes. Right? Some Muslims have tried to combine these two 
And so you know, we be, believe that humans evolved from apes, but the first human was Adam al-Islam. Well, you know, but that, you're saying, you're saying that Adam al-Islam had a father who was an ape and a mother who was an ape. Right? Khair, that's a whole separate topic. I have to do that for you one day. Not in the worth of Seer, but one day we have to give you a lecture on human, human evolution. Otherwise, evolution of species, Islam has no problem with that. Evolution of all species, and any and all species, Islam has no problem with that. It's only the fact that the human species has evolved from apes that Islam can never accept that. This is irreconcilable with Islam. Because what that would necessarily mean is that Sayyidina Adam Islam, number one, had a father and had a mother. We cannot even accept a human father and human mother for Sayyidina Adam Islam because Allah created him from nothing. Let alone could we ever far-fetched it would be that we could accept him ape father or an ape mother for Sayyidina Adam salam. Here, we're waiting for the day that any ape of, I don't know who those special apes were billions of years ago that gave birth to a human being and why the apes today can't give birth to a human being. Right? I mean, we should be able to witness some of that, at least in the record of human history, known ever since history has been recorded, and so that at least you can go back to 500 BC, the Greeks. So 500 BC up till now, that's 2,500 years. That's quite a lot of time, and according to Darwin, a lot of evolution happens in 2,500 years. So how come no ape in the last 2,500 years has given birth to an insan? If that's supposedly what evolution is, that sooner or later over time it will happen. And how come it never happened again? How come it just happened? What, show me what was different about those apes that gave birth to Adam and Islam and the apes we had today. There's just one, one of many things we could talk to you about. Um, but either way, the important thing to tell you in terms of Quran is no matter what science would say, even if I can disprove something to you scientifically, even something that cannot be watched carefully, even something that the Quran establishes with certainty, I don't have to disprove that scientifically. So the Quran says without any possibility whatsoever that Sayyidina Adam Islam did not evolve from apes. So I don't even need to be able to scientifically refute whatever scientific hypothesis comes forth about how man evolved from apes. Because the Quran says it's absolutely impossible. We cannot even, even entertain such a thing. So here, but he also is saying that, oh people, we created you from a single man and a female. And then we made you, وَجَعْنَاكُمْ شُعُوبًا شُعُوبًا وَقَبَائِلًا so it means that we made you into some alternative nations and civilizations. We made you into peoples and tribes. Uh, you can say... Yeah, we made you into races and tribes. Because Kabyle is really more tribes. We made you into races and tribes. So that you may mutually know one another. So this suggests that Allah SWT is saying in the Quran that yes, you came from, obviously said Adam said the same, however, racially must have been the same, right? Genetically near identical in terms of tribe. Well, there were no multiple tribes because this is the earliest history of humanity. But then Allah is saying that the propagation of humanity such became that you ended up in different races, maybe even different human genetic pools. You ended up in different tribes. But all of this is done with the ta'arafu. Now, what does that mean? Right? So that the Arafa means that you may mutually know one another, you may mutually recognize one another. But what is the real basis of recognition? Inna akramakum indallahi atkaakum. Very famous ayah of Quran. That the most honored of you in Allah Ta'ala's eyes is nothing to do with race, nothing to do with shu'ub or qaba'il, nothing to do with tribe, clan, nothing to do with being ahl-e-Makkah, ahl-e-Quraysh, ahl-e-Arab, ahl-e-this, ahl-e-that, nothing. 
all of that is in the eyes of Allah subhanahu the one who is the most honored atqaqum the one with the most taqwa most taqwa so that means the Quran isn't just inviting us to taqwa in Quran Allah Ta'ala is inviting us to the highest level of taqwa this ayah is a simple answer that many times people ask you that you know you're going to extreme in Islam and you know do you really have to go that far so you say was that simple Allah Ta'ala said in Quran that the one who is atqa forget taqwa atqa the one who is the most taqwa that's the one Allah Ta'ala loves the most so I'm trying to make myself in such a way that Allah Ta'ala will love me more and Allah Ta'ala says, who does he love more? The one who has the most taqwa. So it may seem to you that I'm going really deep into it. It may seem to you that I'm going raw into it. But that's what atqa means. It means extreme. Literally I can tell you that Allah Ta'ala, the one who is the most beloved in Allah Ta'ala's eyes, is the one who has the extremest of taqwas. Has the most extreme taqwa, that is the one who will be extremely beloved to Allah Subhanahu That's what Allah Ta'ala is telling us in Quran. Right? And everybody in this world is passionate about something, right? You're not mellow when it comes to your work. So, you know, you're working really hard. You're working 60 hours a week. Why don't you be moderate and just work 40? You say, what are you talking about? I'm trying to make partner. <laughs> I'm trying to make partner. I say, but don't you think that's extreme? Can't you just, aren't you just content with being an attorney? He'll look at you like, what's the matter with you? He'll, he'll think you're talking nonsense. So that's how we look at people when they say the same thing to us. It's infinitely more nonsensical to call passion in deen extremism when you call passion, when you accept every other passion in the dunya. Right? This is what we often explain. Is it that you can be passionate about everything in this world and it's only the deen about you which you want to be moderate? Hmm? How about being a moderate student? Be a moderate worker. Be a moderate driver. Be a moderate employer. Be a moderate employee. You will say, no, 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 no. I have to be miyari. I have to be an excel. I have to excel and be dynamic and be passionate. So what, why do you have such a problem if some people want to try to excel and be dynamic and passionate about being? You have to label that as extremism and then come up with your concept of moderation. Hmm? So no, we're not moderate. Never, there's no moderate in that sense. If you define moderation like that, there is no moderation in Islam. There's no such thing as moderate taqwa, moderate haya, moderate iman, moderate sabr. No, Allah Ta'ala wants maximum taqwa, maximum haya, maximum taqwa, maximum sabr. That is our deen. Yes, if somebody says, no, I don't want this akram, I don't want to be akram. I want to be moderately liked by Allah. I say, okay, if that's your philosophy of life, then you can bring moderate iman and moderate, right? But you have to say that then, that I only be want, be, I want moderate jannah. <laughs> Right? And there's no such thing like that. I've explained that to you before. Jannah is an extreme place. There's no moderation in Jannah. It's eternal. It's the blessings of Allah Ta'ala. It's the vision of Allah Ta'ala. So the one who is most akram in Allah Ta'ala's eyes is the one who is the most taqwa. In Allah Alimun Khabir. Indeed Allah Ta'ala is all knowing, all aware. What does that mean? That set a really high bar on taqwa. And you can't fool us while this. Allah Ta'ala is all-knowing. He knows everything. He's aware of everything. So every single aspect of your life, personal life, private life, public life, family life, professional life, your eyes, your ears, your tongue, Allah knows and is aware of everything. If you want to be atqa, you're going to have to work on every single aspect of yourself. Every place where Allah Ta'ala's knowledge and awareness penetrates and His knowledge and awareness penetrates into every aspect of our very humanity. Right? Verse number 14. 
قالت الأعراب الأعراب means the Bedouin the Badu it means the rural villager Bedouin what do they say Amanna كل لم تؤمنوا ولكن كلوا أسلمنا but say to them the Prophet said that you don't have iman so they say Amanna we have iman say to them the Prophet لم تؤمنوا no you don't have iman ولكن however كلوا what you should say is أسلمنا that we have Islam then وَلَمَّا يَدْخُلِ الْإِمَانُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ And then when Iman entered into your hearts Sorry, وَلَمَّا And because Iman has not yet entered into your hearts وَنْتَتِيُوا اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ And if you were to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and obey the Prophet and you would not reduce and you would not lose any of your actions in the least in the Allah is all forgiving, all merciful so what does this mean to say that we have iman and say no don't say you have iman we just have Islam so this is a long discussion those of you who took our classes remember we gave a whole almost lecture on this topic at the university so what's the difference between iman and Islam these two words many times are used synonymously, interchangeably. But if they ever come together in contrast in the same ayah or the same hadith, it means they mean separate things. And here certainly in this ayah, Allah tells being clear that don't say you have iman, say you have Islam and iman is not yet entered in your heart. So in this sense, iman is something greater than Islam. Right? Iman is something greater than Islam. Second thing you get again that Iman is something that lies in the hearts. So Iman is something that is batin. Islam is something that is zahir. So for example when Nabi Yaqim was asked by the engine Rabiyah what is Islam? So he mentioned outward acts to pray five times a day, to fast in the month of Ramadan, to pay zakah and to go on hajj if it is obligatory upon you once in your lifetime. So Islam refers to outward submission and obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Iman refers to inner faith and conviction in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this particular group of Arabi, and I'll explain to you who they were, they were outwardly obeying and following the injunctions of Islam. They were praying and fasting and paying zakat and etc. But inwardly they didn't have yaqeen in their Iman yet. Now what is this uh, occasion of this revelation? There was a tribe known as the Banu Asa tribe. And there were some people of the Bani Asa tribe that they came into Medina Manawra during years of drought. And, but their hearts were not actually, uh, they were not, they professed to be Muslims, uh, but they had come just because they wanted to get zakat or sadaqah funds. So they were outwardly following the deen of Islam, but inside they did not have real iman in their heart. Another, uh, possible event in Hadith that could be mapped to this ayah were some A'rabi who did not go forth on a jihad and although they were praying and they were fasting but when the, so when the Prophet told them that look you don't have the highest level of Iman yet in your heart because you're not willing to give your life uh, risk your life for the sake of the deen of Allah for the Prophet of Allah the Prophet of Allah so here, either way, right, the notion is that a person does not yet have Iman. So when a person makes Dua, a person should make Dua for both Islam and Iman. Second, even if a person is outwardly practicing Islam, they should still make Dua that Allah should put Iman in their heart. 
then the then the said that if you obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's messenger, then that will not uh <coughs> let's say that will not hinder you in any way, uh that will not curtail the reward of your deeds in the least. It also means it can also mean it will not hinder you in your actions in any way. So this is the notion that to have Iman you have to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and obey the Prophet both. Alright. Much can be talked about about this whole concept of Islam and Iman, uh, but we'll just leave it at there. Next is Inamul Mu'minun al-Dina, Amanu billahi wa rasulihi, thumman lam yartabu, wa jahudu bi amwalihim wa anfusihim, fi sabilillah ulaikuhum as-sadikun. So here now Allah Ta'ala is mentioning the characteristics of the believers. So if a person wants to know that, okay, I have Islam, do I have Iman? What is it that's going to give me Iman? So here Allah Subhanahu mentions the people of Iman are number one, those who believe in Allah Subhanahu Number two, believe in the Prophet Three, Lam Yardabu means and they never ever have doubts thereafter. So what that means is that they're with, without wavering and without doubting. So it means they have Yaqeen in their Iman. So their le- level of belief in Allah Subhanahu the Prophet reaches the level of Yaqeen. Next, wajahudu, and they struggle and strive in the, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number one, bi amwalihim, by means of their wealth and property. So it means they give sadaqah, zakat, they give sadaqah, they give all of their assets, wealth and property. Not all of it, but they're willing to spend from all parts of it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They view all of their amwal also as something to be used for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not entirely, but they view everything they have as part of what will be used for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then second, وَأَنفُسِهِمْ And they also strive for the sake of Allah ta'ala by means of their persons, by means of their own lives, فِيسَبِيلَ in Allah ta'ala's path. This can refer to one, al-jihad, actually uh, going out and repelling aggression or fighting injustice for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it can also mean just exerting themselves in terms of their persons, in terms of their selves, in terms of their strength to establish justice on earth. This could mean everything. This could mean being a dedicated worker for relief and humanitarian organization. This could mean anything they give their life, their sweat and blood uh, for the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Those are the ones who are true and sincere. So this is the category of mu'mineen, those who are viewed to be the true mu'mineen, the truthful mu'mineen who are true to their iman. And then say to them, the Prophet are you going to teach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala your deen? When Wallahu Ya'lamu Mafi Sabawati wa Mafal Arman Allah Spanta knows whatever is in the heavens and whatever is in the earth, Wallahu bikulni shayin alim, and Allah Spanta knows each and every single thing. What does this mean? This is Allah Subhanahu wa saying that uh, again the same villagers of Banu Asad when this verse was revealed if you take that hadith, if you accept this ayah as being related to that then, then they came to the Prophet and they said that no, 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 we do have Iman and they tried to respond to this verse and say no, we have accepted Islam and we have Iman so then Allah subhanahu wa said that no, you cannot insist on this once Allah ta'ala has said that are you going to teach Allah subhanahu about your deen when Allah ta'ala has knowledge about each and every single thing but the general meaning of this verse right uh, is you know really telling all the people any and all people who are students or scholars of deen that you're goal is not to find your own understanding of deen. Your goal is to find out and discover Allah Ta'ala's understanding of deen. 
and there are too many people who are putting forth their own understanding, their own fikr, fikri falah, halki falah, right? Fikri this and fikri that. Where we're trying to figure out fikrullah, <laughs> what Allah Ta'ala sought as He has expressed it Himself in Quran al Kareem and what is the sought of Nabi Akram as He expressed it Himself in His Sunnah. So we cannot tell Allah Ta'ala what His deen is, and Allah Ta'ala is the one who is all knowing. Then, last two verses of the surah. يَمُنُّونَ alayka an aslamu. So they're boasting to you about this, uh, you can say they're boasting or bragging to you that they have accepted Islam. قُلْ لَا تَمُنْ لَا تَمُنُّوا عَلَيَّ إِسْلَامَكُمْ That you should not do ahsan of your Islam on me. You should not boast or brag of your Islam. You should not claim your Islam as a favor to me. So they claim that they're accepting Islam as a favor to you. So the second thing is, Arabi did they said that no but you should be so happy with us that we have accepted Islam. So the Prophet Allah Ta'ala telling the Prophet nobody has done a favor to the deen, nobody's done a favor to you, but rather Balillahu Yamunnu alaykum, but it's rather Allah Ta'ala's ahsan on you, rather Allah Ta'ala has graced you with his favor, anhadakum lil iman, that Allah Ta'ala has guided you towards iman in Kuntum Sadiqin, if indeed you are true and sincere, you would realize that. إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَعْلَمُ غَيْبَ السَّمَوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ Indeed, Allah Ta'ala knows all of the unseen, the secrets of the heavens and the earth. وَاللَّهُ بَصِيرٌ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ And that same Allah Ta'ala, whose knowledge is so perfect and His awareness is so perfect and His sight is so perfect, He knows everything that is even unseen in the samawat and everything that is unseen in the earth. Then what you do بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ All of the things that you do are clearly visible to Him. وَاللَّهُ بَصِيرٌ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ And Allah Ta'ala is aware of each and every single thing that you do. Alright. So here ends Suratul Hujurat. Next is Yes. So I actually did Surah 50 in the morning uh, before the Harvard to Surah Kaf, so we moved to Surah 51. I want to I'll give you a five minute break uh, and then we'll resume. Actually, you know what? Instead of giving you a break, I'll let you out early today. That works better. Alright? So let me continue. Uh, that sounds like a very class thing to say. Huh? Instead of giving you a break, I'll let you out early today. I used to say that. Alright. This is for 51, and you can say this is the scattering, uh, the scattering winds. Now, this is not a very long surah, and there's not really, some of the Arabic is a bit difficult in the surah, you have some shaz al-faz, which means rare usages of words, but not much to comment on uh, in this verse actually, in this surah. This is uh, a Makki surah, going back now after a number of Madni surahs, a Makki surah, and here Al-Sfant is going to be talking a lot about the different signs and features and what's going to happen on the Day of Judgment. Alright? Uh, to hear Aswantal's mentioning, uh, the very first word in the surah is that Allah Ta'ala is taking a qasam. Allah Ta'ala is going to take an oath by several things. Uh, that are natural phenomenon in the sky. So the first thing you can say that the sponsor has taken an oath by the scattering winds. 
And this means by winds that scatter and disperse dust and clouds even, that these winds are so strong that when they come, they scatter and disperse and they move everything away. That is the Arabic meaning of this word, Al-Dhariyat. Uh, so again, you need a lot of English words for some of these Arabic words that we're going to do today. Al-Dhariyat, and those winds that scatter dust and clouds and disperse everything that falls in their wake. Falhamilati wikra, and then those, uh, this is by, and then the second sentence swears by literally those that bear burdens, but this is referring to the clouds that bear the heavy burdens. And then number three, Faljariyati yusra, and this literally means in those that uh, move smoothly, and this uh, third verse people have translated this in many multiple different ways. This could mean, uh, number one, uh, and those that blow gently, that would be with those that blow gently, or those that proceed gently. Some have taken it to mean softer winds, some have taken that the ships and the boats that move on this earth gently and easily means smoothly on the water. Others he's translated in those who distribute things. Uh, so here Allah has uh, taken several uh, sorry, those that float with ease uh, those that float with ease so that can be the winds that float with ease or the ships that float with ease number four and by those who distribute and here this refers to the angels so if you read in the words you would say winds, clouds, ships and angels but none of those words are there in the Arabic it literally is by that which scatters and by that which bears burdens by that which blows gently, and by that which apportions and distributes. Uh, so that's the literal meaning of the Arabic, but you have to read into the file or read into the word that is intended over here. Here, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swears by these four things, he takes these oaths. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is far exalted that he needs to take an oath. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has taken this qasim in Qur'an al-Kareem for an emphasis to emphasize something to us. And many surahs of Qur'an, especially as we go Further towards the end of Quran, you will find in the 29th and 30th shows a lot of qasam that Allah SWT takes to emphasize what it is that Allah SWT wants to say to us. So Allah SWT has mentioned many levels of creation. The winds is something and the clouds are in the samawat. The ships are something that's on the earth in the sense that the bear is also the surface of the earth, the water surface of the earth. And then the angels who distribute, this is a, a shout out to Allah Ta'ala's own decree and Allah Ta'ala's own distribution. So then what does Allah SWT say after all this? Innama tu aduna al-sadiq That indeed what you have been promised and that means the day of judgment, that you will be brought to life after death and gathered in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and judged by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala لصادق, it is undoubtedly true and indeed, it literally means deen but it means that that judgment uh, will indeed come to pass it will indeed take place there is no escaping it whatsoever Okay, and the judgment means the recompense, requital, or reward, or retribution for deeds. All of that will surely, certainly happen. Then again, Allah Ta'ala swears with Sama is that in Jubuk, and then Allah Ta'ala swears an oath by the sky which has paths in it, or you can has pathways in it. Some have said orbits, saying the pathways are the orbits. And indeed, all of you are in are in contradictory conjecture. You are all involved in contradictory speech and contradictory doctrine. 
now what is this? This is referring to people who uh, contradict the views of Nabi Kareem Sallallahu who contradict the views of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and it's suggesting that all of humanity is in this constant dispute about what is haq, what is batil, what is true, what is false, what is real, what is unreal. This is the nature of humanity. So this Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala took this custom, said this statement after taking the custom of the sky. Now what is that? The sky, the paths in the sky, the orbits in the sky are fixed. There's no dispute. Earth isn't trying to enter Venus's orbit. Mercury isn't trying to enter or Jupiter's orbit. So those things are fixed and they're settled and they're content and they don't dispute. As opposed to humanity, which is not fixed and content and settled, but rather is constantly disputing and disagreeing and engaged in such discussions. Yufaku anhu man ufik. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the who is going to be turned, anhu means to be turned away. Now this can be anhu from what? Number one, it can mean from the Day of Judgment. So that there's a person who is turned away from the Day of Judgment, means they deny the advent of Qiyamah. Who is that person who is going to do that, who is turned away from it, or is deluded away from it? Is that person manufik, who is deceived, or who has been lied to? Anhu can also mean from the Qur'an, so turned away and deceived about Qur'an is the one who is deluded, right? Uh, maybe that is one way you can say. Uh, and another meaning of this is that Anhu refers to that ikhtilaf that Allah Ta'ala mentioned in verse 8. So from all the different and divergent expressions that humanity have, so that divergent expression, uh, that contradictory doctrine is that is by which the deluded are deceived. The yufaku anhu min ufik, the deluded are deceived by that. Then, kutilal khalrasun. So, kutila literally means may they be killed, but you can say here may they be destroyed or may they be brought to ruin and they will be doomed. Who are the khalrasun or those of conjecture? So, doomed are those people who conjecture. What do they, they apply their conjecture to Qur'an or whether they want to believe in the Day of Judgment is a matter of conjecture for them. It can also be people who, you know, conjecture means they estimate, they speculate. It can also be people who are stubborn. Uh, stubborn. Alladina hum fi ghamratin sahun. And 11 means that these are those people who are wallowing in their ghamra. So sahun means they have lost themselves and they have lost their senses and they're wallowing inside ghamra. Some can translate ghamra as ignorance. Some have translated ghamra as, as two people translate as ignorance. You can, it's ignorance, but ignorance is jahala. Ghamra is like, it's, it's an emotional. It, you could call it the ignorance of emotion. That this emotional, wish, wishy-washy emotional state that they're in, in which they conjecture about Qiyamah and Qur'an, in which they dispute with one another, in which the disputes and arguments that they have lead them to delusion, all of that emotional, wishy-washy state, so it's, it's, it's an ignorance, but it's not ignorance, it's their emotional frailty due to all of this delusion and self-confusion, so such people uh, will be doomed. Uh, and this is what it's referring to, basically a type of atheism uh, or a type of agnosticism that people, just because there's so many views out there, so much conjecture, so much dispute, so much disagreement, so what do they do? They let themselves get deluded by all that. It's a very modern predicament, even though I was saying this years ago. They let themselves get deluded by all of that and they start losing their iman in Quran and iman in the Day of Judgment and then they will, uh, you know, 
uh, Allah is saying is that they will be doomed on that day. And what is that day? Yomahum ala nari yuftanun, and that will be the day that when they will be literally trialed uh, in the fire and tried and tested in the fire. But it means obviously that they will be uh, punished by the fire. Luku fitnatukum, and Allah will say that you should taste your trial. Uh, which means you can taste the punishment. And this is what you sought to hasten. Now this is back to the common theme that we had that the unbelievers used to say that if the day of judgment is coming, let it come now. Bring it on if we're really going to be punished. Punish us and get us over with. So this is a response of saying this to them. Now in verse 15 onward, after all of this confusion and people who are turning away from the day of judgment, now and indeed the people of Taqwa, they shall be in gardens and in springs. And they will be literally simpling as they take they will be taking what their rub gives them. Fancying that they will be receiving what their Rabb bestows upon them. And indeed before this, because when they were in the world, they were Mohsineen, they were people who were doing excellence in Deen. So Ihsan means to be virtuous in Deen, to be excellent in Deen, to be striving in Deen, to have Ikhlas in Deen, to have Istiqamat in Deen. Mohsineen is to, view, to be one of the highest categories of Mu'mineen. Right, the people who are steadfast in their iman and amal, and then Allah Taala describes his one particular special aspect, few particular characters of his Muslimin, kanu kalilam min ma that they used to sleep very little at night. They used to sleep very little at night, and wabil asharihum yustaghfirun. And in the ashar, the time of sehri, right, sahur, in the early morning hours, they would pray to Allah Taala for forgiveness. This would come earlier in the Quran, I mentioned to you that this is an incredible quality of these people that after being worshipping all night, you would think they would pray for something. Praying forgiveness would be for the one who was sinning all night. But this was their humility in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This was their ihsan. That they don't do ihsan on Allah ta'ala like we did before. That don't uh, think that you're coming to deen as a favor to Allah ta'ala. They viewed that Allah ta'ala, us being up all night, or a lot of the night, and we only slept a little of the night, means we were worshipping you, praying to you, reading your Quran, making dhikr, all of that, most of the night. At the end of that, our heart feels that we need to make istighfar. They were unworthy. Unworthy of this action, unworthy of this blessing. So there is so much asan in their deen. They were so pure and self-effacing in their deen, so that Allah subhanahu wa has a special love for them. And another thing, so this is their ibad, this is going to show you deen and dunya. So as far as their deen goes, this is the level of ibadah, which is not moderate. It's passionately intense. And as far as this world, And in their wealth, whatever wealth they had, they're not to be wealthy, but whatever property possessions they had, they viewed that as a haq. So you could say there was always a portion, there was always a share, or you can say there was always an equitable fairness that they had in terms of the distribution of their property, lisail for anyone who asked, you can say it's a beggar if you want, for anyone who asked, and for the mahroom, for the one who was deprived. Yes, for people who are so poor, they're just deprived. It means they may not ask. They're not sail, but these are two separate categories, right? Sail is the one who is so mahroom, he just, uh, he or she is just bringing herself to ask. And just mahroom means a person who is not uh, you know, not asking, but they're deprived, right? And so they, which, what does that mean? 
This means that despite their intense ibadah that they were worshipping almost all the night, they still had the pulse on society. They still felt compassion for the poor. They still would find out who is mahroom. They would search out those deprived and they would give them a haq from their amwal. Right? So this is really, I mean, this is real deen. The people of most, those Muslims, and may Allah Ta'ala enable us to try to become like that, they are people who are real. Real mu'mini. And so this, these are the people who Allah was saying, these are the people who will be in Jannah. Alright? And then Allah Ta'ala goes back and says, indeed in this earth, uh, you know, there are signs for the people who have yaqeen. And their signs in their own selves as well. Do they not direct their vision and perception? Uh, do they not uh, see? Maybe you could say, do they not see these signs? And in the sky is the source of your risk. Means Allah, Allah sends down the water from the rain, which is the source of all substance provision on earth. And everything that you have been promised. And indeed Allah takes custom again by the rub of the sky and the earth. And indeed this is haq and this is certainly the truth just as you can speak just as oh people you can speak just like the fact that you can speak just like that this Quran is a haq means just uh, for example out of all the senses of people uh, one sense of theirs is that they can speak right uh, and when a person speaks clearly to you then there's no deception there's no illusion Right, so here Allah is saying it about his kalam, kalam Allah about Quran, that it is as haq as truly the kalam of Allah, as if you say a sentence, you know that that sentence to be truly yours. This is the sense of uh, this ayat over here. So again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, swearing on different things. Now we have to move to verse 24. <coughs> That has the story come to you of the honored guests of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam. This is when they came to Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam and they greeted him. فَقَالُوا salama And they said salam to him. قَالُوا salam And he responded salam back to them. And they were, <coughs> he said salam to you and he said to himself that these are unknown people. So he said salam to them and he said to himself that these are unknown people. So first thing is that uh, on these are the angels who came to meet uh, Sayyidina Ibrahim salam. And initially he didn't recognize who they were. So when they said salam to him and he said salam to them, he said this to himself that they were unknown people. Munkar here simply just means unknown. They're strangers. They're unknown to me. Okay. What did he do? Okay. Verse 26. Then he slipped off to his home and he fetched a fattened calf. What does that mean? That he went home and this was his ikram of the guest that he went home and he went to get a large animal which he would then slaughter for them and entertain them. So this is showing that the uh, one of the ulama said that the adab from this story of Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam is that when you have a guest, you shouldn't, when guests come, you should simply silently go 
and make food for them or bring something for them without asking. This is a mistake a lot of us make to be asked. Of course, the person is going to say no, right? And so this is literally what they say. So you shouldn't ask. You should go. And I made this mistake recently with one guest of mine. I asked them that if they wanted what was made that day, chicken biryani. And obviously they said no, and then I realized later that I was foolish and I should have just gotten and put it in front of them. And I felt very bad later that I shouldn't have asked, right? And I've seen some people, Allah, but really, and the Muslimin who have so much hosting that they'll put everything. They won't even ask that, what else is that you guys say? Tanda ya garam. They won't ask that. They'll show up with a tray and there's chai on it and there's water on it and there's some cold beverage on it. And then, you know, obviously it's giving you a choice by amal. Yes, you don't always have to be like that. You may not always have the time to do that level either. But either way, Sayyidina Ibrahim went and then he uh, went to bring the food. So what's the next thing when he slips away so he comes back? So uh, verse 27, so he presented it before them to eat, um, but being angels, they refrained. So um, this is something that the Malaika have no need for food on this earth. And... Alright, and so he realized this, uh, he realized that this is some other type of creation that's come to me, so verse 28, uh, so he felt some fear in his heart, uh, he felt some fear in his heart, so they replied to him, they said to him, that don't fear, don't be scared, and then they gave him the good news of the birth of a very wise son, and this is viewed to be the birth of Sayyidina Ismail al-Islam, some, okay, Sorry, this is the birth of Sayyidina Ishaq Islam. This is the portent of the birth of Sayyidina Ishaq Islam. Then uh, when his wife came forward with a clamor and slapped her own face and said that how can I have a child when I'm a barren old woman? So what this suggests is that his, when they say his wife came forward, so she approached in an uproar, means she was behind and now she came forth in an uproar, striking her forward. She said a barren old woman means I'm infertile and postmenopausal, however you want to call it, means how will I be able to bear a child? So the angel responds, and thus has decreed your rub, and indeed Allah responds as all wise and all knowing. So then Sayyidina Ibrahim said to the angels, that, What is your mission, O emissaries, people who have been sent from Allah? They replied that we are sent, we have been sent to a people guilty of sin, and this was the people of Sayyidina Lut to bring upon them stones of clay marked for transgressors in the presence of Yorda. So this is something we had done earlier with you, uh, that uh, this is the punishment that the angels are going to come on the people of Sayyidina Lut. Alright, then after that, once this is done, the Allah is going to bring up the story of Sayyidina Musa and Sayyidina Fra'un again. Uh, but before we do that, uh, where did we go? Verse 35, then uh, we will bring out any of the believers who were there to come forth out of danger. So all Allah says that we brought all the Mu'minin out. This was done, we explained it to you earlier, came in Quran, Allah inspired Sayyidina that he and the believers should leave the city because Allah's punishment is coming. But Sayyidina wife, uh, she was not from the women who were rescued because she was also an unbeliever. That also suggests that other than this particular sin, there must have been other types of sin that were going on of Kufr, because obviously uh, her being a wife means she's a woman. Uh, 36 we found only one household of people who submitted to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The only one household of Muslimin in that entire community. 
Uh, and this commentators have this either means the household of Sayyidina Lut himself, or in addition to Sayyidina Lut there was one household of his Sahaba, and they were also to come out. And Al-Fazatri sent the, the punishment on them. We left in this event a sign of deterrence for those who fear the painful punishment. This is the notion that the ruins of the people of Sodom are still there, so if a person walks past them, they will remember and reflect on what is the intense punishment for this sin. Then in verse number 38, Allah Sponsor talks about Sayyidina Musa. And indeed in the story of Sayyidina Musa, we sent him to Fir'aun with a clear proof. But Fir'aun turned away along with his chiefs and he said that Musa Islam is a magician, a sorcerer or a lunatic. So we seized Fir'aun along with all of his forces and threw them in the sea. And indeed he was to blame. He was guilty and to blame. And then a similar sign was left for people to reflect upon the story of Ad when we sent down upon them the wind uh, which means the tornado or the hurricane uh, we sent against them the destructive wind that left nothing it came up against that, that spared nothing it came upon and it disintegrated and smashed every single thing as if it had decayed and was rotten similarly verse 4 all of this are stories that we've done in detail right earlier and verse 43 similarly a sign was left in the story of Thamud and the people of Thamud when it was said to them enjoy yourselves for a little while yet they defied the order of their rub and then the thunderbolt or lightning of they were struck by a thunderbolt which is the punishment of Allah in front of their very eyes while they were looking on where they couldn't even they weren't even able to stand nor could they defend and save themselves in any way and finally in verse 46 Allah mentions yet another previous community and we destroyed the people of Nuh as well earlier on for they were also a dissolute people Funny concerts, raining. Okay, once again we have to make this announcement. White Honda LEC 9341. White Honda LEC 9341. Uh, you're actually blocking our gate. So I think after yesterday I scolded you for blocking the neighbor's gates. So now you're blocking our gate, which normally wouldn't be a problem, but apparently, unbeknownst to me and maybe many of you, it's raining extremely heavily. So the road has flooded a little bit, and so the people who are coming to pick up or drop, they're not able to ascend on the driveway. So whoever has the white Honda LEC 9341 is going to have to remove the car. Right, verse number 47 Allah Ta'ala now again swears referring back to swearing to uh, these physical creations that Allah has made and indeed the sky was built by us with might and indeed we are the one who have expanded that sky out here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when referring to his creation of the sky uh, and really I mean many ulama have talked about this when you look at the sky the vast expanse of the sky and makes a person reflect on the might and power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
Although obviously the sky is nothing because planet Earth is just a drop in this universe. But even if just the expanse of the sky makes us realize the expansive power or even a person can look at it because Allah mentions this elsewhere in the sky is a canopy. So the expansive um, mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it makes a person remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the earth we've covered by spreading it out richly which means Allah spread out the earth as a floor so uh, and then from 48 Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says 49 that we have made pairs of each and every single thing so that you may take heed so this I've done for you before also everything has been made azwaja everything has been made in pairs Allah ta'ala alone is that being who does not have a pair then in verse 15, Another famous ayah, means go and flee to Allah. What does it mean? means flee towards, not flee from. means flee from your sins towards Allah. Flee from your ghafla towards the zikr of Allah. Flee from disobedience towards obedience. Flee from ignorance towards knowledge. Flee from neglect towards worship. It means one should flee to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is so powerful, but with his might and power created this incredible world for us to live in for our sake and for our comfort. So we should flee to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that sense. And then, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Indeed, I, and then tells the Prophet to say, Inni lakum minhu nadirun mubeen. That indeed, Nabi Akram is just a clear and manifest open mourner. And don't set up any other gods or deities along with Allah And then again the same thing. Don't set any gods along with Allah to whom I have come to you from Him as a clear and open warner. Again, all very uh, self-explanatory here. Verse 52 in a similar way, that similarly to all those who came before, what came to the min rasul in illa kalu sahirun o majnoon, that no community, uh, in a similar way, every messenger that came before, the community that he was sent to, called that messenger a sorcerer or a madman. Have they handed this down as a legacy from generation to generation? Indeed, these are but a perverse, or sorry, a rebellious people. <coughs> Therefore, you should turn away from them. <coughs> you should turn away from them, spurn them. <coughs> and you will not be blameworthy in any way. So turn away from these people who are calling you a sorcerer and possessed and you are not to blame in any way. But what you but you should admonish and remind because indeed such admonishment and reminding and advice and counsel is of benefit to the believers. This ayah has a more general meaning and that is that it shows that mu'mineen need dhikr and tazkirah. This ayah establishes the mu'mineen, me and you need to constantly be reminded, counseled, advised, Right? And so the whole purpose of every gathering of deen can be brought down to this ayah. Second thing this ayah establishes, it's a command to someone to give that advice. So that means that when people say, People say, I will just listen to Quran. The Quran is saying, listen to the advisor when he gives you advice. Listen to the zikr of the zakir. 
listen to the tadhkirah of the mudhakkir wadhakkir that people must advise and counsel others why because fa inna dhikra tanfa almu'minin that such advice and counseling and admonishment is a benefit to the believers وَمَا خَلَطُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لَيَعْبُدُونَ Yet another famous ayat of Quran al-Kareem Allah says that indeed I did not create the jinn nor humanity except to worship me, except to serve me, except to be slaves to me So both meanings are there Ibadah and Ubudiyah These are two root words and the verb could be used for both Ibadah obviously doesn't mean you're supposed to worship Allah 24 hours Right? That you always should be in Salah or Sajda No it means you're either in ibadah or ubudiyah. You never go outside one of these two things. Either you are outwardly expressing your inner submission and slavery to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, ibadah. Or outwardly you're doing something else. You're working, teaching, studying, traveling, eating, interacting. But at that moment, even though your outward is not doing ibadah, your inward is still qaim on ubudiyah. Inwardly you still hold yourself, carry yourself, feel yourself to be the slave and servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, and there can be no other third state, right? And the whole purpose we've been, exist- we've been created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to feel that service, that servitude, or to feel that slavehood, to feel that feeling of ubudiyah. مَا أُرِيدُ مِنْهِمْ مِنْ رِزْكِمْ وَمَا أُرِيدُ أَنْ يُتِئُونَ Allah Ta'ala says that Allah Ta'ala has no desire uh, in any way uh, of sustenance from them and Allah says nor do I need them to feed me in any way rather it is Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala is the being who is the razaq who is the provider of sustenance Zulquwa and is the being who has all power Zulquwa Tilmateen who has all manifest power who has uh, solid power put it that way and indeed those who the lot of those who do wrong will be like the turn of their counterparts what does that mean? Uh, this means that those, those who are sinning their lot will be like that of fellow sinners so they should not ask they should not ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to hasten the punishment towards them in any way what does it mean that the sinners of today will be just like the sinners of previous times and just like in previous generations Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala let the sinners live out the course of their life so here also the sinners will be allowed to live out the course of their life and in previous communities yes some of them were sent to punishment by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but in this community after the Prophet there will be no such punishment. Then indeed, woe to those people, woe then, i.e., a portent of possible destruction to those who disbelieve, because um, on account of that day that which they are promised, means that they have a woe because of the day they are promised. That is the day that they will be resurrected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and called to. Uh, account for each and everything that they do and they will have to face the jaza of their kufr right now here when Allah Ta'ala said وَمَا خَلْكُمْ جِنَوْا أَنْسَلْ again although that's the only reason Allah Ta'ala created us but that is a choice Allah Ta'ala has given us it's a choice Allah Ta'ala created us for that purpose but He also gave us a choice whether we choose to live up to that purpose or not but you will see in this world that everything that doesn't fulfill its original and intended purpose lacks value for example if somebody makes a machine and if the machine is a million dollars 
fine, that's the value of the monetary value of the machine. But if the machine doesn't do what it was intended to do, then the factory owner will say, this machine has no value for me. But if you insist that, no, no, it's a million dollars, and it's got this, and it's got that, it's got so much steel, and it's got the Italian company's name branded on it, he'll just say, look, it doesn't do what it's maksad was. And so the maksad of insan is ubudiya. We exist, we're not, we don't exist to enjoy this world. This is a myth. This is the materialistic myth that we have. That you exist to enjoy life and therefore you should be modern in the end. That's actually the real myth. Yes, if you existed to enjoy life, then you should take a very minimal attitude towards your deen and only do what's technically required so you can keep maximizing the enjoyment. But we don't exist on the satas making clear in this ayah. We haven't been given existence by the Creator who brought us into existence to enjoy life. That's not why we exist. We've been, we've been created by that Master Creator. We've been given existence to subjugate ourselves to Him as His devout and devoted slaves, obedient slaves, and His worshipful servants, His ibad. That's why we exist. That's the purpose of life. So if a person has that purpose of life, what will they do? They will then enjoy the dunya to a minimum. Just like that person. They will have a moderate attitude towards dunya. They will eat moderately. They will spend on themselves moderately. right? They will sleep moderate amounts. That's where the moderation is supposed to come. Because the asal is the asal. You can never be moderate in your asal. So our asal in life is ubudiyya and ibadah. Everything else is secondary, so the secondary stuff we will do in moderation. We just need a moderate place to stay, a moderate car to drive, we need a moderate clothes to wear, moderate food to eat. That's where the word moderate was supposed to come. So the real problem where people have thought that they should be moderate in deen was the materialistic myth. That they thought that we've been come to earth to enjoy this world. Right? So this ayah is Allah SWT making it clear. And yes, it befits that the majesty of that being who created us to tell us why he created us. In fact, that should and should always be the right of Allah SWT alone. Alright. So what is Tur? Tur is the Mount Tur, right? Uh, and we've, I think we've done this before here. Tur stands for Mount Sinai, you would say in English. Now, a lot of discussion because Dur and Sinin and Sinai, these are non-Arabic words. And also, I'm going to discuss with you, but it's a very long discussion this year of non-Arabic words in Quran because Allah said the Quran is Quran al So, one answer, for example, is that Allah Ta'ala sprinkled some Arabic words into Hebrew and Aramaic and Syriac language. But either way, here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what Dur is taking a qasam by the mount of Dur. This is the mountain where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent wahi on Sayyidina Musa where he called Sayyidina Musa, we've done this before in the Quran, where he called Sayyidina Musa to him to reveal to him the quote-unquote Ten Commandments and the Torah and the Kitab and the Scripture. Wakatab in Mastur and Allah Spantal second swears about this as Allah Spantal swears by the written book. Firikin Manshur and that written book is spread out in an open scroll. Alright. Now what does this mean? Uh, the, it means a fine parchment, Wadakin Manshur, Firakin Manshur in a fine parchment that is spread open as a scroll. So the book is written on that. This may refer, some say this may even refer to Quran al-Kareem, some may say it refer to a person's book of deeds, some are saying 
more likely that it's referring to the book which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had spread up in scroll, which is the scrolls of the commandments that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bestowed upon Sayyidina Musa Islam. Well, Bayt al-Ma'mur. Bayt al-Ma'mur literally means the populated house. What is Bayt al-Ma'mur? So Bayt al-Ma'mur is like the Kaaba of the Malaika. It's like the Bayt of the angels in the seventh level of the Samawat. That is the angelic realm, the highest level. And in that there is the Bayt al-Ma'mur. And around that the angels do tawaf around that Bayt al-Ma'mur. So you have Bayt al-Ma'mur, uh, Kursi, and then Arsh. Uh, and this is, and differences of opinion about Sajdat al-Multaha, where that will be. Here, I mean, the details of that are not something that is essential to our Hidayah on earth, right? Exactly the layout of the celestial realm, but these are things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned. Yes, we know that Sayyidina Rasulullah when he made mention of his trip on the Miraj, so he talked about Kursi and Arsh and Beta Mabur and Sidal Muntaha. So our Nabiya saw all of these things, but Anil Yaqeen and it is sufficient for us whatever mention Allah Ta'ala has made of it in Quran and whatever mention our Prophet has made in it, that we believe in all of these things. And by the roof raised high, and by the brimming sea. So what is the roof raised high? Uh, the roof raised high is referring to uh, the sky of this earth that is raised high. By the brimming sea, uh, that is referring to the oceans uh, on this earth. Uh, one sentence that is referring to the oceans on this earth. Uh, some have said that in fact... On the Day of Judgment, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will um, set fire to all of the uh, water on earth. Now this is a difficult thing to understand because water does not catch fire. But somehow, if through Allah ta'ala's command, obviously because he is Allah Kulish and Qadir, nature of water becomes such that like it is fuel for fire, like oil, like an oil burns in the lantern. So you can imagine that if all the waters of all of the oceans became fuel for a fire, what a tremendous fire would burn. And so that is the sense uh, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning it over here. And so uh, what is that? That the punishment of your Rabb is surely going to come about or surely fall upon people. There is nothing that can avert that punishment means delayed or postponed in any way. And this is the day when the sky will tremble and sway in a terror, terror, terror type way. In an agitated way. And the mountains will also move about and go into motion. And so woe to the disbelievers on that day. Those who were indulged in vain talk and playing with the truth. What's the word Allah Ta'ala use? They engage in vain talk and they play with vanities. On that day what will happen to them? They will be driven into the fire of Jahannam forcefully. That they will be driven forcefully into the fire of Jahannam. It will be said to them that this is the fire that you used to deny and you rejected and you thought that it didn't exist. It's narrated that Sayyidina Umar when he narrated, when he recited Surah Tur, he fell ill for 20 days. He said the intensity of the Surah made him so faint of heart 
and so ill in tabiyat that when he recited these things about the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that all of the waters of the all the oceans will be fire and the people will be dragged into hellfire forcibly Allah Akbar that for 20 days he fell into an illness here so let me finish the, this, uh, this this passage Afasifnun um, hadha and then Allah Ta'ala will call out to them that is this magic you said that the Prophet was magic he was a magician right so is this magic and he's the fire of Jahannam is it magic is it conjuring or or do you not see do you not realize today it makes no difference today whether you endure it enter into it enter deep into it and whether you endure it or whether you are unable to endure it this I had explained to you before as well whether you bear it or not it is the same it will make no difference to you whatsoever but you are only facing the recompense and retribution for what you ever, whatever it is that you yourself used to do Grant us all of the adab of Quran, grant us the adab of all of the Anbiya, grant us the adab of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Let us first and foremost have adab with you, Ya Allah, adab with Nabi Kareem Sallallahu other with your Quran, other with his Sunnah, other with his Sirat, other with his Sahaba, other with all of the Sadiqeen, Siddiqeen, Shuhada, Salihin of this Ummah. Ya Allah, we ask that by means of this Adab that you put Taqwa into our heart, Haya in our heart. Ya Allah, you said in Quran wa Kareem that the Akram Mu'mineen in your eyes are the ones who are Atka, have the most Taqwa. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we want to be most beloved to you. We make Tawbah being the most beloved in this world being the most attractive in this world now we want to make ourselves the most attractive to you the most beloved to you Ya Allah grant us that way of life that has the most taqwa grant us a home which has the most taqwa grant us a spouse which has the most taqwa bestow upon us children which have the most taqwa Ya Allah let everything in our life be atqa because we want to be akram in front of you Ya Allah we want to be akram in front of you for all of eternity Ya Allah may us atka in all of our lifetime, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, we ask that you accept our fast, accept our salah, accept our Quran, accept our dua. Make this month of Ramadan the month of taqwa for us. Make it the month of la'allakum tattakun, where we come true to your hope and expectation that by the end of this fasting month we may become amongst the muttaqeen. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Alameen, Rabbana takamal minna innaka anta samiul alim, utubwalina in